Hello, I'm Invisible Oranges Editor-in-Chief Andrew Rothmond. Welcome to Screaming Bloody Oranges, a metal podcast brought to you by Invisible Oranges, the metal blog. To keep introductions short, the guiding principle of this podcast echoes that of our website, to bring you meaningful heavy metal commentary and coverage that goes deep and seeks purpose behind the art. The format will go like this. Each episode will comprise three roughly 20-minute themed segments whose topics may be timely or general, interrelated or variant, or completely left field. Each episode will also include some introductory commentary by me, as well as a rotation of hosts and possibly guest hosts to keep the mix interesting. We're also keen to feature in-depth, at-length, discussion-oriented interviews with individuals in the metal scene at large. These will comprise their own episodes, with the exception of this special double debut, which ends with a kick-ass interview with grind godfather Scott Carlson. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to your heart's content. Subscribing via your favorite podcast service should allow you to get updates on new episodes, and we'll also post on our website when each one launches. As a note, this episode is recorded in early May 2020. For our very first segment, the hosts and I will introduce ourselves and get a bit of background on how we, well, got here. <laughs> I'm Andrew Rothman, and I'm joined by staff writers and now podcast hosts Joe April and Langdon Hickman. Hello. Hey, you two. Hi. Doing well. <laughs> Had so much fucking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Beer for me, and then I think uh, I think Joe, you're on you're on the water diet right now, right? Uh, yeah, probably drink later. It's it's three hours. Um, All right, California. earlier from the East Coast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going full spider brain right now. It is straight up nearly 9 p.m. I have had my third cup of coffee. I am mm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> this is how you write so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's weird. I mentioned uh, before, like it 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 feel like I'm constantly like uh just whinging in private to, to editors to be like, Oh, I feel like I'm so slow. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Langdon, the most prolific of us uh, complains about being so <laughs> <By> far. <laughs> like, oh, I only wrote six yeah. pieces this week. I'm such a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's, what's to know about Langdon and, and, and heavy metal outside of obviously your excellent death metal column. Um, thank you. I, yeah. Uh, so, my whole uh, let's get full corny. My journey with heavy metal uh, began. Mm. Um, I, I, I mentioned this before, but like it, it sticks in my memory. Like just uh, having older. I had an older cousin that my brother looked up to at the time, and I my brother was older than me, so I looked up to him. So it was this whole causal chain of emulating this cooler older person, and so he helped get us into like. Uh, Terminator movies and RoboCop and this is like very early 90s like 91, 92 so the stuff was brand new and part of it was like yeah, I, I live in Florida here's some you know, Cannibal Corpse Morbid Angel, it's nuts blah. and I was like three and it just like blew my mind open and I couldn't handle it so I sort of put it away for a while but then um, around the same time that's when Metallica was be- becoming huge and like like every single person had Metallica something. So my brother, who is older than me, because again, I, I was straight up like three or four, mm-hmm. um, begs my dad. My dad is uh, had had been involved with music for a while. Like Jan Hammer played at my dad's second wedding, which was weird to find out as an adult. <laughs> it's like you mean a you mean a, the jazz fusion legend Jan Hammer of Mahavishnu Orchestra and also Miami Vice fame. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, we hung out in the 80s. We did blow together. And I was like, okay, all right. 
I'm nine. I didn't need to know that part yet, but okay. Um, so it's, but, it sounds like it's like a bunch of like uh, like unintended exposure, but you're just you're just there absorbing what you see. Yeah, right like here. my my dad had like tons and tons of records growing up, and so when my brother and like he got the Sabbath debut when it came out because he was like twenty right. when it came out, nineteen or twenty, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm young. I'm into." I love Vanilla Fudge. I love Blue Cheer. I love all that stuff. So, and you said this is heavy, fuzzed out rock music. Okay, I'm in. Um, so when my brother was like, "I want to get these Metallica things," my dad was like, "Okay." Um, and so, like, I've been around other stuff. Like, I remember my my brother uh, locking me in a dark room and playing the opening of uh, Black Sabbath, the the song with you know the tritone and the the mm. wailing. Oh God. Like that's scary as shit. <laughs> yeah, I, and I was like six or seven, so it's like associating heavy metal with that ultra theatrical thing. But yeah. and you know these being this like these sacred texts uh, to my brother, who I looked up to, these Metallica records that he wouldn't let me touch. And eventually, like when I snuck into his room, the first one that I found that I just happened to take because the cover grabbed me, the images grabbed me, happened to be Ride the Lightning, and I was like. <laughs> maybe six something like that like really young and i just snook off mm -hmm. with it and so it's this like ultra clandestine like broke into my older brother's room i took this record like i'm not supposed to and then like locked it's one hell of a record bedroom. to take you ever just listen to that record yes like li <laughs> yeah. even yeah e yeah for me you still know, yeah. that's like that's like the thesis statement of heavy metal in my yeah. opinion like more so than judas priest and black sabbath like that record just is like, it's it's the the top of the mountain. Um, Are you I, happy I, that it's like one of your first experiences too with metal? Like it could have been a yeah, shitty I, album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I <laughs> I, I grew up in the era of of, of new metal and stuff like that, and I mm. I have mixed feelings about it now. Partly, some of it's obviously the little bit of of shame of looking back at twelve and thirteen. Like one of the first records I bought with my own money was untouchables by corn, mm -hmm. which I still think is a good record. I think like of, of I bought a corn city with my own money too, back in the day too. You're yeah, not alone. So, yeah. And so like some of that stuff I look back fondly on, but I think pe some of the people that I hear now saying that it was good. Don't quite remember the, um, I don't, I don't even want to name the B or C tier bands, but there were a lot of, there were a lot of bad new metal bands, a lot. And we uh, all listened yeah. to them and I'm, I'm done. I did my time. And now I'm out. <laughs> um, but yeah, and sort of because I grew up in, in suburbia, um, somewhere between suburbia and rural environment of like central Virginia, which hadn't quite blown up as much as it has now. Mm. It was always hard finding people who like similar music. Like there were a lot of people who loved punk. There were a lot of people who liked psychedelic music. A lot of people who liked jazz, um, R&B, hip hop, stuff like that. And, you know, I liked. I liked that stuff too, but when I wanted to put on metal stuff, I had to like, I had to proselytize it, which sort of yeah. honed a certain approach to thinking about it. Um, that when I finally got into college and was able to wrangle a whole, I mean, I was lucky that in, in high school, I also had a whole bunch of people that were into it and that I got into like death metal and, and weird psychedelic and progressive metal and stuff like that and black metal and all that. But so you had that in high school, but maybe not grade school. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. In, in grade school, the amount of people who were willing to listen to Emperor was very small. Yeah. Um, there was there was a minuscule amount of people um, <laughs> that grew over time. <laughs> but yeah, it's just sort of it's just sort of always been there for me. So unfortunately, it's less of a 
the the ride the lightning thing is yeah. the closest I have to a pure like origin thing. But aside from that, it's it's as interwoven in like my life memory as like going to prom or like first. That's first crazy. Kiss yeah. or stuff it's like crazy that. that it was that early. You mentioned like six or seven years old and like early nineties kind of stuff and like. You know, what is it like for a six or seven year old or even an eight, nine, ten year old to hear Ride the Lightning? Like, what does that sound like? It doesn't sound like when a 30 year old listens to it. It Who's listened it, to metal for decades. Yeah. It, it has the same like crazy magic to me of like, yeah. of like the, the best Pink Floyd records or, mm. you know, the best Deep Purple records or Marvin Gaye or like I was obsessed with Michael Jackson when I was really mm-hmm. young. Um, I still like him a lot, even despite the easily googleable stuff um yeah leaving it there <laughs> but uh yeah that yeah so it's still it it thankfully hit me at a like a pre-critical point where i didn't have and i'm, I'm sympathetic to this we can get burned out on like people like overly selling us stuff or you know, being overly enthusiastic or like you know punishers it shows all, all that kind of stuff that comes from the social aspect of art mm. I I didn't have any of that. It was just it was me at home holding these like huge record sleeves or like stealing so a like CD from my brother. Maybe an element of like isolation, but almost like a comfort isolation. Yeah, it's it's the, the same music. kind of like yeah. diving into a book the way that like right. your world gets erased and it gets overwritten by this other thing. And it's do you just know how hard it is to the do art. that these days. Like oh I, my god, I yeah. used to be able to do that a lot more. I still do because like sitting down and like eyes closed in the bed noise-canceling headphones, only the music. Like, that's important to do, I think, but, like, I used to be able to do it so much more. I'm just yeah, too my, wired, too wired nowadays. Yeah. My par- my partner and I have, like, specific um, stuff that we program into our week of, like, at this point, we're going to go to a coffee shop. We're both going to have headphones. We're not going to talk to each other. Unless not a bad idea. Be- yeah. And books and records or, like, I'm going to just... I mean, I think that's part of why I'm able to not be burned out by call like, brain social time. media or Just the internet. It, yeah, brain yeah. time. Yeah, because it's like trying to make that, uh, trying to make that balance like a a day to day thing instead of like mm-hmm. I'm gonna go nuts on social media for like two weeks and then quit for a year <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, different people got to do themselves, and not not judging. Yeah, and okay, let, how about you, Joe? What's what? Tell us the oh. entire story of your life in heavy metal from start to finish. <laughs> In five minutes. <laughs> uh, I think LinkedIn had 10, so I'll, I'll try to know. Well, to start off more recent, uh, just so to introduce myself to everyone else, especially anyone who hasn't read what I've written, I've been with Invisible Oranges now almost a year. I think I first thing I participated in was our mid-of-the-year roundup of best albums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, with with in mind that I would write something substantial soon, which eventually came, I think in August or September when I wrote about the um, yeah, September I think when I wrote the Mork interview, the mm-hmm. black metal band yeah. that does not appreciate getting uh, reference to the Mork and Mindy show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he was aware of that. I, I don't think he knew about the show, but after enough people bringing it up, he was aware yeah. Of it. Um. Before that, uh, I'd been a bit of a journalist here and there, uh, mostly a local paper and stuff like that, but it had been a long time, so kind of a coming back to journalism. In terms of metal, um, I oddly enough, like it was great that Langdon went first because actually I 
can almost entirely credit to Ride the Lightning as well. Nice. Um, There's a little more backstory to it than that. I kind of always wish I had an older brother who was into it, who could have gotten me into it, or even... Years later, I kind of realized my uncle was, but he was on the other side of the country. Um, So, you know, and again, before the internet was much... You know, unanimous with life, uh, didn't really have that kind of a connection. Um, so I kind of discovered it all on my own before really diving into metal. Like I'd been to the Beach Boys, I'd listened to like soundtracks of like James Bond movies and Star Wars and stuff like that. Like all good shit. Not really. Yeah, no. And and at later in life now, I've actually gotten back into soundtracks, um, but. You know, nothing really approaching metal until... And again, I think it was the soundtrack influence that I heard Metallica's um, S&M, you know, which is Symphony mm-hmm. and Metallica, um, not Bondage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was hearing that on the radio. I think it was a single for No Leaf Clover, so it was probably around 99 or early 2000. Um, and hearing that and just going, what the fuck is this? And tracking it down, really enjoying it. And then it took kind of like a year, maybe nine months, of trying to get into other Metallica, but it was like kind of a Rocky Road thing. Like I got reload on tape. <laughs> and Oof. I was like, yeah. I was like, huh. I like It's not your fault. Of- you know that. Yeah. It's not your, because you didn't know, but it's like, yeah. oof. Yeah. I, I got, I liked some of it. Um, but it was clear it wasn't like the magical moments from the SM yeah. live album. Uh, and then, like, I got the Black album, and I like that, but it's still, mm-hmm. something still didn't quite sit right. It was like, something's missing. Uh, and eventually, I think it was right before I started freshman year of high school, like, it was that summer, maybe a month before, I got, went to Walmart and bought Ride the Lightning. Yeah. Went home, and kind of like you guys said, just, like, put it on my boombox and plugged in my headphones and just laid in my bed listening to it. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I love that. It, I think we all have that same feeling of like, what in the, it exists? It does. Yeah. It's almost like we knew it had to, but just couldn't find it. it it's was, like you're doing math and you're like, wait, maybe are unicorns a thing? And then one day you're in the woods and you're like, it just like passes. And you're like, holy fuck, that's a unicorn. Holy fuck, I knew it. Like, <laughs> it is that feeling, yeah. The um, it, And it was so weird, too, because... It, again, it's the energy, the passion, the music, the fact that, you know, and at the time, not really understanding, but just how well-constructed it is. I mean, right. how, how masterful songwriters those guys are. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think it was also a realization that, like, music was always kind of, kind of came in and in and out of me. But this was something where I really stuck, in particular, because it was like, wow, these guys, like, these aren't just like nothing songs. Like these are songs about something that is like means something like nuclear war, you know, the, the death penalty, um, right. you know, war in general, suicide. Like all of these were like, you know, these are things of consequence in life that do happen or could happen. And, and it kind of hit me in a profound way, like, like metal. So right from the bat metal for me was music that was wrestling with, the darker things in life, but things that people should wrestle with that mm. are important, that have that actually have meaning behind them. Right. Um, 
and then from there, you know, it was a slow journey of looking through, you know, the back of CD thank you lists to be like, oh, they mentioned this band. Oh, they mentioned this band. <laughs> and, or, you know, getting like I got, uh, you know, I got the Metallica cover album, you know, Garage Inc. And yeah. that was a big revelation was, like, OK, I got to get this. I got to get this. Um, and like a funny story of that was obviously they're huge Diamond Hit fans and they did a bunch of Diamond Hit songs on that. So I went to the local, I can't even remember how, was it FYE? The record yeah. shop? Yeah. In like the Montgomery County Mall, um, God, where was it? like Georgetown or somewhere? Gaithersburg. Gaithersburg Mall. And um, went to look for Diamond Head and I'm like thinking Diamond Head, Diamond Head. And I see King Diamond. I'm like, oh, that was it. So I, <laughs> so I, I pick up King Diamond's Abigail. Not knowing what the fuck I bought and going well, that's home. That's an excellent mistake. <laughs> yeah. And that, and I'm huge, probably uh, besides Metallica, like King Diamond and Merciful Fate now is probably like, if you combine those two, it's probably the most listened to band. Yeah. Like if Merciful Fate and King Diamond was one band, like easily that would be the most listened to tracks in my life so far. Um, so I was getting into that, getting into power metal, which was kind of a weird thing. Cause like Landy was talking about, it was like, I think the time we grew up, that early to mid 2000s, um, or maybe even the late 90s, it, you know, new metal was such a big thing. And I drove in, and I do have some nostalgia for things from that. Like, definitely, like that, those early corn albums, like, um, and especially when they started getting MTV play. Like, I thought, man, that, that was band a big was deal. pissed off too when they played. Man, they were, <laughs> oh, yeah. those early albums are pissed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I kind of quickly didn't feel that the kind of new metal angst like that wasn't mm. like it was sort of like you know and it was probably because i was fortunate that i didn't really come from a troubled home or anything like that so a lot of the lyrics didn't resonate with me like i didn't have angst about sort of this oh it sucks to be a teenager living in you know here or there or whatnot um like for me i was like you know i want songs about you know war and you know <laughs> these these grander things and especially with metal of course everything's so grand um so i'm trying to remember where i'm going with this so i got into power metal um and obviously after hearing like iron maiden judas priest and getting into that that was a really easy segue and it was you know power metal is pretty damn different from new metal like obviously oh, it's yeah. like everything <laughs> like dragons and fantasy and tolkien instead of you know and again i was a big geek so that was easy to kind of get. I was going to ask, did you see yourself as kind of a nerd back then? I had to ask because of the power yeah, metal. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I was always, yeah, I was definitely the kid picked on, uh, yeah. definitely a bit of a nerd, um, bit of a loner. Like my dad was in the military, so we moved around until like mm. the fourth grade, like gotcha. every year, every other year we moved. So I always kind of kept to myself. I was always the kid who was kind of observing other kids because I never kind of had that bedrock of community I was with, which I guess mm. metal kind of became like that surrogate community for me. Um, and then not long after getting into power metal, I had a good friend of mine uh, named Jared Hackman who got me into death metal and black metal pretty quickly. So that was like junior year, maybe beginning or late sophomore year, high school. Yeah. Um, and we had our funny, cringy moments, like dressing up in not corpse paint, but we actually had like you know the stud bands and everything and 
went to some like snow covered church and act like we were about to torture it, even though we had no <laughs> no idea how we would do that. But, yeah, yeah it, took, it took a little crappy like disposable camera and taking photos. Oh yeah, man, that's so cool. Yeah, pose like that. It's yeah. shit that teenagers do, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love that you're upfront about it too. It's like, yeah, we were stupid teenagers. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, uh, yeah. every five years I look back at my previous self and I'm like, ah, oh, man, cringe. So yeah, much I know cringe. too. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that at 31, this is probably probably the first time that I've looked five years back and went like pretty good pretty good not bad like like better now certainly but like <laughs> not bad meanwhile yeah. like any other time I'm like can't believe can't believe they suffered him to live can't believe that <laughs> like and um but yeah I mean I, I think that's normal and, and I don't like yeah regret any of those years or anything like that and I have a lot of I mean I have nostalgia for that naivete of youth um i mean that's something i think more people should sort of just treasure in terms of not being like oh i was right back then about whatever but just kind of appreciating like you know just sort of appreciating their own innocence at least when it wasn't ignorance causing someone else pain i think that is probably something you know be more critically reflective of um but anyway so getting through all of that my parents kind of kept me on a tight leash, so I never got to see too many concerts. Like, I think before I went to college, I'd seen four total. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting to college was a big deal. On my own, I was in a big city. I was in Philadelphia. I started going to shows like crazy. Um, and that just, the world kind of exploded. And, and even beyond metal, like, I got into neurosis. I got into punk and hardcore. Like, yeah. all these other musics, like, discovering Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, discovering yeah. Godspeed You Black Emperor, like, all this other music kind of coming in, um, which which is a little different than some people, because I know some people had punk really early in their lives, and I never did. Like, mm. again, I had a very small musical group, maybe two or three friends, all the way till the end of high school, who liked anything remotely the same as I because um, again, for me, punk was just like Blink One and Two and Navy Green Day. Like I was just like, oh, I don't like that. That's just. <laughs> yeah. and... I can follow not liking it if that was your if that was your uh, set of touch points. <laughs> and so it wasn't until college that I really kind of like started going back and discovering stuff. Um, yeah. And then yeah, that led to now, and uh, I've been fortunate the last four years uh, I've been able to go abroad. Um, so now I have a pretty international group of friends and associates and we all meet up at big metal festivals, either in Europe or here. Yeah. I think that a lot of us in the metal world share that experience of like, not that we're all like basement dwelling loners, cause that's certainly not the case, but there's that element, there's that small person inside there's of those us. Periods. That, in yeah. Our lives where where like that. <laughs> you just seclude yourself and like, maybe like I never had many friends in grade school and I had even fewer in high school. And like the ones that I did have, like we shared music because that's what we were into and stuff. And like, I cherish those friendships of course, but at the same time I spent a lot of time alone, you know, just me and my, you know, Sony portable CD player with 20 second skip protection yeah. and those really yeah. thin headphones they came with that sound like freaking dog shit. Uh, Do you ever have one of the yeah. like, Kind of like the colored Max, where it was like kind of like multicolored little ones. Oh, I I remember those too. Yeah. And it's like, it's like I think like I compare it to my experience now with music, where I have like I'm a thirty, am I thirty? I'm thirty one, 
and like I have like equipment to listen to music on and I have the internet to access any of the music that I ever want ever and I have high quality files and I have all this ways of like digesting it but somehow it's still not as good as it was <laughs> when I was like 16 and I found like you know that Lamb of God album or that Slayer album and I like listened to it like it felt like pure electricity coming out of the speakers and energizing my body I mean, and like I even while have like, yeah I even have a similar kind of kind of thing with that with like the first time I got a smartphone and like was able to play music out of it but I had mm -hmm. forgotten to buy headphones so I had to listen to it out of the the tinny <laughs> speaker and just like laying down on my bed blaring uh disintegration by the cure out of my phone mm. at max volume with it propped right next to my yeah. ear and just like that kind of the the feeling of that was completely different in a very magical way to like you know, putting the cans on and yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like they'll sell you a thousand dollar set of headphones, but they won't recreate that ever. They won't recreate that moment where you like, you first discover something in that, that sort of adolescence or that sort of like that blind, you're kind of blind to the future and it doesn't really make you anxious. You I mean, don't I worry about certain things. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we have a better experience. Like I don't think that's the right word compared mm. to people younger than us, but I think we have a unique experience in that our adolescence was where the internet was beginning to become the thing it would become. Right. And so we have this weird thing where we still kind of experience some things that were part of that analog world that had been there since the 60s and 70s, you know, getting cassette tapes, like getting, you know, or going through our records, like, or, you know, parents' record collection, mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, but then also beginning to be like, be able to get an MP3, know what that was, have CDs, be able to yeah. rip a CD. We're, we're like the bridge friend. people, you know, like we, we've, we have a foot in both worlds. Yeah. Like yeah. there's a ton of stuff. Like I would hate to admit to like, if, you know, if I met like the guys in Demi Borger and be like, oh man, I love you guys ever since my friend ripped me your CD collection. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, be like Whoa. Oops, I did pay for it at first. Eventually I did. Uh, you know, and then God forbid, you know, going to college and LimeWire, um, and everything. Uh, uh, I remember like all the, uh, lawsuits and like, we're going to, we're going to yeah. arrest college students for downloading albums and shit. But I, I mean, destroyed so many computers with viruses <laughs> that I downloaded on accident. <laughs> or it's like, and it's oh, like, slipknot.jpg? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a like lot the of folks, one advantage yeah, of, I was just going to say, the one advantage of having a Mac laptop was not too many viruses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back then, at least. Um, There's a lot of folks in the metal world now like who are of age and able to, yeah. to digest the stuff we do who don't know what LimeWire is or any of that stuff. And it's yeah. not like – you're right, Joe. Their experience isn't better or worse. It's just different. And understanding those differences is a good way to like connect with people who are, like let's say, 12 years younger than us who are getting into metal. They have those experiences, too, when they sit down in their shitty speaker or whatever they have and discover something for the first time. Like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to feel that. I want to, I want to like, have, like, an IV of that feeling into me like, somehow. Yeah. Like, I would love to have, back then, like, give myself, like, a Spotify subscription. Be like, here's the world of music. Listen to whatever right, right. you want. There is no boundaries. Like, that, in a way, that would be amazing. It, and it's a weird thing, because I guess it... You know, if you think of it deeply enough, it, you can relate to it to all those curmudgeon kind of old people who kind of criticize in every generation, criticize yeah. the younger generation because there's this weird feeling you get when you have to suffer to gain something. 
mm-hmm. um, when you have limited access to something, there is this weird appreciation you get for this thing that you had to mow 20 lawns to go buy the $20 CD at the FYE. Mm-hmm. And right. yeah, maybe it was shit and you didn't want it, but every once in a while you got something golden and emotionally you connect to it in a way that I don't know if I could have, if I just was like streaming and was like, Oh, that was cool. Yeah. No. And I, we, I, I love that you can cherish those, those things from the past too, where it's like the way it worked out while in retrospect, like, wow, I wish I could have had access to everything I wanted at once, like on Spotify or Google Music. It's at the same time, you're appreciative that you almost like had it shitty <laughs> where it's <Almost>. like, <laughs> like, yeah, where it's like you had to mow 20 lawns to get a CD where in like, and nowadays it's like maybe, maybe if you're 12 years old, your parents just add you to their Google family subscription and you get Google Music and you can just look on your phone and get whatever you want, you know? And it's the it's same like, with movies. Yeah. Like, I mean, God, like even mm-hmm. in college, like, you know, being introduced to the idea of like international cinema and right. independent cinema. And it was like, you know, how do you get these things? You know, yeah. some things not even being on DVD. And now it's like, you know, like if I could have had a Criterion collection subscription, like back then. Shit, you'd be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your eyeballs would have rolled in the back of your head. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah. And, and, and I think, Maybe to segue into, into my story into metal, like I, I share the same experience with like how do you get access to that sound you know exists? Like I knew somehow, like you know, I'd found you know a Doors CD, their their their, their first album, um, and I love the Doors. Uh, back uh, way early, like uh, playing around in my parents' basement, like maybe 10, 11 years old, I and I knew how to work the the CD player. I popped the Doors in. And I think I had heard my parents play it before, but it was like this, like, I understood somehow, like, it's hard to say because when you're 11 or 12, you don't understand fucking shit. But, um, but I, somehow the music spoke to me in the fact that it was like, it was sad. Like, I could tell that this wasn't music for like smiling and like driving around and like being happy. Like some of it rocks, obviously, but like, it's, it's that the doors are fucking hardcore, man. And, like, I knew that when I listened to them, like, that there had to be more music that had that kind of emotional capacity in the negative, uh, if you wanted to make it a polarity, like, negative and positive music. Um, which isn't fair in all cases, but... Well, I would agree. Like, I mean, yeah. it's not the Beach Boys. Exactly, yeah. It And, like, and and Jim Morrison, and, like, I just... I, 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 I remember learning more about him somehow. Like, I think my dad had, like, a Doors book or, like, some kind of compilation where something where you could read through and get a short history of the band. And I was just like, music, interesting, cool. And like, where's more? And so I, I was digging through my parents and they, it was like the who and, uh, you know, fucking, um, I mean, just the, just the hodgepodge of just like that old classic rock you might hear in the nineties on the classic rock station, basically. And like, that was my exposure. I was like, but I always gravitated toward the harder, heavier, like more emotional, like darker stuff. And, and then it was like, it was that until I had found out about Corn. I think was the first like, I guess you would put them in a category more metal than not, new metal, um, and Slipknot. But it slowly snowballed like from the Corn to Slipknot, and and then there was this and the, the, my most vivid memory at least of 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 back in the days, uh, and this must have been 15, 14 years old. Uh, my friend who was a bit older had just gotten a car because he was sixteen. Uh, living back in Ohio and, and like the, one of the first times you go for a ride like he has this CD and he shows me and he's like this band is called Slayer and I'm like 
Slayer. Okay, like what is it? what is it? And I was like, he's it's like we it's all heavy metal. Our first Slayer yeah. experience. And like, <laughs> of course, it was Rain and Blood, and he puts it in, <laughs> and like we go on a long drive through the windy roads. We live in the suburbs in Ohio. We have we have hills. Um, mm-hmm. Is southwestern Ohio, and uh, it's just like this music is playing, and I'm like. I can't even, I'm beside myself. I have no internal monologue at this point where it's like the music and me are at one and I'm feeling like this, this surge of incredible energy inside of me. And I'm like, how could this shit exist? This is what I was looking for. And it was like, you know, like songs like Jesus Saves and everything. It had, it had this like, it had this edge that I knew would piss people off. And like, I won't lie, that was part of the appeal. Like just the negative energy of this music that could, that would just like make your mom go, oh, I can't believe it. You know, why would you listen to that garbage? You know, like, because I can say fuck you. <laughs> and like, man, when I heard that album, I, I knew then like it had confirmed what I heard when I listened to The Doors and even that new metal is like there's darker, more sinister music out there. But when I heard Slayer, it all came to be. It was so powerful and triumphant neck epic. And hell, it, it was even short. Isn't that album? It's album's like less than half hour. It's, it's like, like 27 minutes long, minutes long yeah. or something. And it's just like it comes and it goes and it's angry and it's pissed and it's gone. And it's like, there's your album, buddy. And I just love that approach. I love that, like, feed it to me. And uh, it was from there that I stepped in, like, from the world of, like, I guess you'd call that thrash and new metal. And then Iron Maiden came in, of course, and Metallica. Like, those all came in and fell into place, like, after that Slayer moment. And I started to learn and discover about, like, deeper and deeper music. And then I think different from both you and Langdon... Um, or Joe, you and Langdon as like, I, I got into metalcore and deathcore. Like that's where I pivoted from thrash and like, like your classic kind of like metal mainstays. My first dip into the underground was trying to find like underground metalcore and deathcore bands that, and this would have been, uh, early two thousands, like mid two thousands, right on the cusp of that big metalcore boom that I was trying to dig around and find those bands. And then I stayed with metalcore for a number of years throughout like high school, um, you know, late 2000s. And that was the heyday, I think, for metalcore too. Like all those bands back in the day were releasing just like these walloping albums and they were, they were making waves and like everyone was into metalcore and in, 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 like in my circles. And like, that was the thing. And I dabble with death metal and play around with other things. I wasn't like genre ignorant, but I just love metalcore and deathcore. And like, it was interesting to like, I guess, kind of come back into metal proper if we to, I don't want to say that metalcore is not metal proper, but come back into like death metal, black metal, doom metal, and the things that nowadays are kind of the staple um, elements. So what we like cohesively call like the metal underground, and like to see that almost from a fresh light. It was almost like maybe in the late twenty or the early twenty tens, I was coming into some bands that like you and uh, you, like Joe and Langdon. Maybe you guys have been listening to for like a decade. It's like I didn't get into Morbid Angel until like a couple years ago. You know. I wouldn't oh, say a couple, wow. but, but like not 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 back like, in the God day. Damn, you know what for I mean? Real? Yeah, yeah. No more. Uh, I guess I failed to realize that I've been doing Illid? this. Damn, Fuck, I've, that's I've been sucks. writing about music. Sometimes I think I started yesterday, where it's like I've been writing about music for half a decade. No, even longer than that. Uh, I mean, um, I'm talking like yeah. early 2010s. Like I'd, I'd start to Google like Morbid Angel, then I'd Google like Suffocation, and I Google like all the fucking like just any any band I'd find on like like. I just type in death metal bands in Google and just listen to one after the other and say, which one do I like? Yep. Which one do I not like? Nope. And the ones I like add to my library. And like that, that's been my methodology ever since. I mean, that takes us to now. That's, I just look, I listen. And if I like it, I add it. And then I have this library of mine that is like my, 
my, my prized possession. <laughs> it's like I can access that library and know at any moment that um, I have something that fits the mood that that'll fit because I've been searching for so long for all these for, albums. So for so long, like I, I kind of made the transition, but um, I had one of those iPod classics that had pretty much my entire music library because it was yep. like 120 gigabyte. Um, so like everywhere I went, like it was like with me was my entire music library. Mm-hmm. I could always pull up in my car. It's like, oh man, I'm really in Amoebix mood. I'm going to put on some Amoebix. Oh, there it is. Ah, so yep. on, uh, we're having a video chat, by the way, uh, for you podcast listeners. And I am Here's displaying. Oh, and Joe has one too. We have classic iPods with the uh, I have a touch really wheel. insufferable story when, <laughs> once you're done with this. It's yeah, just me roasting the hell out of myself. 80 gigabytes. <laughs> and this thing like vibrates too because, you know, it's like a hard oh. drive. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love it. I love it. Old school technology I, is a good way to listen. I was way worse. Um, I got I got real insufferable for for a bit. Um, our, that a bit part is arguably not necessary. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I uh, I I turned my nose up at, at iPods because you had to make not only an MP3 but because of the size restrictions, you couldn't have it above a certain uh, quality. And mm. I was like, mm, mm. Um, I was like. 15 or 16. I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about, uh, but I thought I did. Um, classic, classic 16-year-old boy thing. Um, so I bought for hundreds of dollars at the time. This is like mid-2000s. No. Oh. A 500 gigabyte external hard drive. And I ripped oh. every single CD that I got in like uh, like OGG or WAV files. WAV, yeah. Dude, I you were smart. Have an, I didn't have a, an iPod because yeah. I couldn't fucking fit anything on it. They, uh, it was like one album was a gigabyte. Um, yeah, because you have WAV files versus MP3s. Yeah, Loading so I like would those, carry around. Yeah. Literally, it was a canvas bag full of CDs. Mm. Full. Like mm. I didn't have a CD booklet because I was like, no. Oh, I had no. Those. I, I love. I love the art. I love the no. I was like just full insufferable about it. So I'd have this like again. You can't see it. I'm making like hand motions right now but it would be like as big as like two laptops like side by side tall just filled with cds it was like hundreds of dollars worth of cds that i would just carry in this fucking bag like a dick and i'd be like yo you want to let me put on some music they're like you're gonna put on some weird french prog rock or some and i'm like no (laughs) they were right i would um they were they had they had me pegged but i would lie (laughs) um I mean, I yeah, definitely I had, have my. I, I relate to the to like wanting to play stuff for people. Like, You're gonna love this, and most of my friends <laughs> or like their friends being like, "Who the fuck is this insufferable asshole?" Yeah, uh, I'm glad yeah, that, I've been I, that I, guy. luckily I luckily had enough friends who who were into punk. So again, like mm. the area that I grew up, I was close enough to Richmond that you had to love Guar. You had to. Yeah. Or you you were dead you were dead. Um, you also had to love hardcore. So like everyone grew up listening to Crass and Dead Kennedys and Discharge and just because like everyone was into punk. And so as a result, you have a bunch of like teens and preteens that are that are into hardcore. You're inevitably going to get the like, oh, you think that's fucking wild? Listen to this shit. So like, <laughs> and I, I'm from Virginia and I'm close enough to Northern Virginia that like I can remember when. 
like, agoraphobic nosebleed and Pig Destroyer started to break because, like, everyone was stoked on it. Everyone. Yeah. Like, yeah. anyone within maybe a 20-mile radius of Northern Virginia, like, just got Prowler in the yard the second it came out and just it's, was nuts about it. Like, worth- I remember the the exact moment that I heard um, Starbelly. Just, like, and I'm, like, I, uh, oh, not Starbelly, Hyperviolet. Or Hyper, uh, Hyperviolet? Hyperviolet? Which, whichever one. Like, remembering the exact moment that I first heard that, like, and then it goes into that, like, weird hurricane-sounding riff. Mm. Just, I love how we all have, like, that mind-blowing experience where it actually, like, blows you back in the chair, literally and physically. Um, but it all comes from different places. Like, it doesn't matter where in metal, like, metalcore, fucking death metal or black metal, like, it exists if you find it. And I think that's the cool thing is, like, part of the allure of, of, like, doing journalism and, like, being a journalist, which I'm sure you've both experienced, too, is, like, you are on the forefront. You are on the crest of that wave that is pushing and discovering new music and bringing it to people. And, and that is giving them, by proxy of what you're doing, of the work you're doing and, like, the, the work that we all put into this, you are actually giving people the opportunity to have that kind of, like, I'm, blow- I'm getting blown back in the chair experience. And, like... Not even orgasms do that all the time. You know what I mean? It's like it's like yeah. something that's so like so hard to get, and especially as you get older, you realize how hard that is to really achieve. Um, you get that, you give that to some people, and and that's almost as good as getting it yourself. I think is being able to give it to someone. So um, there's also the yeah. the fascinating thing of like you. It becomes more and more clear over time the longer that I do this kind of stuff that very little art is actually singular. It's normally like a million little shards that came together for this one little window. And if Mm -hmm. the artist had tried to make this thing outside of that window, it would look very different. But that only sort of becomes apparent when, like, for me, a a friend who is really into hardcore, um, like, took me to hardcore festivals and stuff like that and force, force exposed me to a lot of it, was like, Langdon, you should check out this band. They're called Harm's Way. You're going to fucking love them. Mm -hmm. And he played the, uh, the final track off of, um, forget the name of the record, the one with the cloud with eyes gripping mm. a rat. Um, I can't and uh, still love the record, love the band. But I heard it and I was like, holy shit, this is some of the best fucking contemporary death metal I've ever heard. And he's like, what yeah. are you talking about? This is a metalcore band. And I'm like, no, this is <laughs> these are literally death metal riffs and only death metal riffs. <laughs> and that's the only thing that's here. And he's like, no, this is metalcore. And then sort of learning that, like, like it's dumb that it was something necessarily that small, but then that replicating over and over, like, the first time that I heard Rain and Blood, all I could think about was, because I, I wasn't holding the record, I thought it was one big song, mm-hmm. because it plays like one. I thought it was one 28-minute long song with a million parts, and I was like... That was the craziest fucking most extreme prog metal thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And the person I was sitting by was like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> like, Slayer what did you is just prog. Say? Call Slayer? Yeah. Uh, I got but, the but same I mean, shit what? for calling Lamb of God metalcore, which I guess I did I, a couple years ago on my anniversary, and I still got shit for it. Like, I mean, in 2017. Like, I mean, yeah. kind of you start But it all, other... it's all colored by what you've heard and what you've experienced. Yeah. Like, you yeah. can hear the prog in... Dare you even argue Slayer? If you really, well, I mean, the, it well, depends then, on what you've heard, you, though. Yeah. Well, merciful fate, from, in merciful fate. Yeah, exactly. Had, mm-hmm. Yeah, had, had a lot of prog to it. Yeah, and, and they talked about, it, especially in the early days, like how much of that was their big influence. Yeah. 
I mean, you so even hear there, Hello you Waits, it, yeah. which is like Hello Hello Waits is their Merciful Fate tribute mm-hmm. record. Yeah, that does a fucking great job and is super proggy. And they even explicitly said, like, yeah, no, we made uh, Rain and Hell or, or Raining Blood because we thought we like we did it with Hello Waits. Like we weren't going to get better than that at that yeah. style. So let's. But they still had that in in their brains and just that fascinating thing of like. Even sometimes in private, like, you hand in a piece to someone, and someone's like, why did you call this thing that? And then later you hear that parroted in other places, and it's it's less... Like, the the more that I experience it, the less that I go, like, what the fuck, that person's just dead-ass dead, dead ass wrong when I hear someone <laughs> say a weird genre description of, of a record, yeah. and more you like... try to think of, like, how they may have come to that conclusion, as opposed to that conclusion is fucking wrong. Yeah. Especially because you start yeah. listening to interviews with people and you find exactly. out that, like, the members of Rush loved, or not Rush, the members of Metallica loved everything from from Rush to Judas mm-hmm. Priest to, like, they were, they knew it's of the more extreme stuff. And, mm-hmm. like, it, you're like, oh, okay, of course that would all intermingle and, like, the, you're going to hear this and I'm going to hear that. And yeah. It's fascinating. So, like, um, as I was saying about the the coronavirus, like, we're all stuck inside. You know, we were having a lot of indoor time. And, you know, thinking about, uh, like, music but in video form, it's an interesting translation. And there's a lot of artwork that goes into, like, translating, like, metal music, but not, not just the music, but culture and people into, like, video content that you can digest and understand and, and that makes sense. And um, I know Slave to the Grind was one we wanted to really talk about, but, you know, if we look back, you know, we were talking about these old Slayer albums and all these Metallica albums and shit that got us into metal proper. Um, you know, it was actually documentaries, in my life at least, of those bands like Slayer and and then Mastodon played a big role too. And then Ma- Mastodon's first documentary, like back uh, in, in, in those days, like watching those, it was like, it just affirmed, like maybe I didn't at that time have my foot fully in the scene, so to speak. I was still kind of in that loner kind of space where I didn't know many metalheads, and the ones that I did liked Opeth, and I didn't. So, um, wait, wait, wait! You didn't? You, what? No, we'll gloss over that. You didn't like Opeth? Like Opeth. What the hell? I liked Unearth. I didn't like fucking Opeth back then. It was oh. like I listened to metalcore and stuff. Like everyone Bad. knows that, yeah. Like I listened to Bad. Opeth. And I was like, this is interesting, but like I'm more int- I, like I'm more thrilled by uh, by Unearth and like like that's terrible See, and shit. That's yeah, the, it's that's the cheap just thrills. Awful. All cheap thrills. My whole my whole life, if I go into it, is all cheap thrills and and, and pony tricks. Back through the twenties, like well, I lived a crazy life, and there's that. To, to relate it to to documentaries, yeah. um, in this will segue. Just give me a minute. Uh, yeah. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned Unearth because I remember a pretty pivotal concert for me was seeing Dimmu Borgir in two thousand five six at the Electric mm-hmm. Factory in Philadelphia, and the whole tour was a lot of bands I didn't really care about, and one of them, op- one of the opening bands, was uh, Unearth. But yeah. f- for whatever reason, at the Philly date, they did not play, and instead Behemoth filled in for them, which Aww. made me so much happier. <laughs> and it's it, terrible. And they had an amazing set. Like I'll never forget they pl- Behemoth's playing. And again, it just you know, it's a better thematic fit for a Demi Borgir show. Yeah, I, um, I agree. Unearth is a weird match for that. But it, I, I forget what album this is well, you know, two thousand six, well before he got sick and everything. But um like, like Zoskia Cultus, I think, was around then. Yeah. Uh, well uh, later than that and after Demigod, it may have been the album after Demigod. Um 
but they uh, they're playing just heavy fucking riff going. The whole crowd's going nuts, and then they just stopped on the dime. And the crowd, there was that magic moment where the crowd didn't quite know how to mm. react, so there was no audible gasp or anything yet. And Nurgle went, Nurgle yeah. went up to the mic and just went, shh. And before anyone, like any noise could perturb that moment, they went right back into it. And I was just like, Ooh. ah! That's what spots. they call a pro move right there. That's something you practice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's playing with crowd dynamics. I love it. And Demi Warrior was great. And that was one of the first documentaries that I kind of got into. It, it, there was a weird case where I feel like, like when bands were trying to find how to fill out their DVDs for like concerts and stuff, right? They would right. do these sort of documentaries or like, tw- you know, kind of take a bunch of interviews that they wrangled together with like tour footage. Um, mm. And I remember like the world, I think it was called like World Domination or something like that. Uh, Demi Warrior DVD. I think that in the Cradle Filth one at the time, like when they were touring off of Midian. Um, I remember those were two of the earliest ones where it was kind of getting like an interesting behind the curtain look at both bands. Yeah. And you found those like fascinating, I assume, for all the right reasons. Like they. Oh, yeah. And it was fun, too, because it was like, you know, it was cool. Like it it was interesting how like they're interviewing like the members of Demon Warrior and they're all like Kiss fans. They're all like, oh, yeah, when I was 12, (laughs) like like my parents gave me a Kiss record. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And it's like, okay, well, it, it really does make sense <laughs> how everything yeah. kind of turned out. And, um, and then the Cradle Filth one was like, the tour antics are so funny, where it's like, like I think it was Danny or someone did something really stupid, like they're in Mexico and getting drunk off of tequila. And like someone's like, snort a line of chopped peanuts. And he does it, and it's just like, what the fuck? So it's like Viva La Bam tactics. It's yes, like jackass it's, tactics, it's, yeah. It's very much yeah, that. Yeah, I think that was a large appeal and still is, you know, that kind of like rebel against all causes kind of thing. And like, I remember Children of Bodom that comes to mind because A, they were a band back then that I got into, like as I started to get into the metal, but also B, because Alexi Leo kind of turned into like this like kind of bad kid sort of vibe. Like, and then he, there was, there was also like a Swedish or sorry, a Finnish equivalent to Jackass that they did a, uh, like a, I think a collaboration. I don't know if it was video or maybe some YouTube thing. I'd have to look it up, but it was like, and I, I think it's interesting with documentaries, how like around the YouTube kind of generation and like when, when streaming things became the norm versus like, like Joe, like you mentioned, like we had DVDs and shit, you know, and we got to put them into the fucking player and sit down in front of the TV and watch a DVD where now it's like, I can stream a documentary and do something else or I can, multitask but the point is like access and like just like music access to these things is huge and yeah like um, my mm. my my first big thing when i got netflix for the first time this was when they still mostly did discs and it was mm-hmm. like the streaming catalog was super tiny um was i so like you were mentioning or like we were talking a little bit before about the whole like um connection of nerdishness and and metal um, that just sort of is this quiet connective tissue that sort of lingers in the background. Huge goddamn nerd, which is probably not a surprise. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> like the, the second that I got it, I booted up like what, what fucking documentaries you got boys. Um, and would watch like literally any documentary that they had any whatsoever. Like, especially if it was a topic that I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. Like I watched on there a documentary about noodling, which is like hand fishing for catfish. Hmm. Had never even heard of it before, but I was like, you got two hours and a whole field that I don't know about? Give it mm-hmm. to me, boys. 
It's like, um, like a curated equivalent of those old Wikipedia dives of like grabbing it and hitting random, yeah, uh, random page a whole bunch and then being like, yeah. I'm learning about a Brazilian soccer player today, boys. Um, <laughs> but was there yeah, any um, having, was there any like metal or punk one that really kind of you remember, you know, so like maybe the first one that kind of stood out for you? So the, the first thing that sort of led me to that specifically in a music world was like watching. I loved just watching concert films in general, like live DVDs, because there were a bunch of bands who would be like completely impractical to see. And then eventually it's just like, oh, they put this all this other production into it that I never would have never would have guessed. Um, mm-hmm. So like I watched the Pink Floyd live at Pompeii one mm-hmm. like very early in my life and it's still probably like the best one that I've ever seen. Just mm-hmm. them playing Great. in the completely empty Pompeii amphitheater playing, you know, playing echoes, you know, set the controls for the heart of the sun, all these great things. But in the original film version, it's intercut with documentary footage of them making Dark Side of the Moon, which hadn't come out by the time that that gotcha. came out. And I didn't know that was in it. I was just told by someone like, oh, you like you like concert DVDs? Here's one. And so I was like, wait, what? They're, what is, are they making? Oh, my God, that's us and them. What the fuck? So got really into it. And I would mostly uh, gravitate to like, I'd watch any concert DVD, but then specific ones like Iron Maiden had um this concert that they did in rio and i don't i don't remember the name of the dvd but i remember the cover of like eddie's face yeah you know, yeah melting into was the stage. I, think I, had, um, I think i had that one <laughs> i think it's live in rio i think so um and it it had a documentary on it so i was like that's the one i'm gonna get mm-hmm. like i could get live at donnington which they'd re-released on dvd and i could get you know all these other ones that are that are great that you know gave us like literal like landmark masterpiece live records but no that one has a documentary i'm gonna watch that one um, I just went, I went nuts for that stuff. Like, um, I was in the middle of high school when Blood Mountain, uh, yeah. came out. It, like, every, every metalhead was into Mastodon at mm-hmm. some point. They may lie about it now because they don't like the direction that Mastodon went. That's <laughs> fine. We all, we, we grow, we like different stuff. But there was a point where literally everyone who vocally liked metal owned and loved at least one Mastodon record. It just, of it, course, yeah. It, it was a thing. And they started doing like mostly on the on the metal and punk end. The way that I got into it was most of these bands didn't have the budget to get like a DVD put out. Like that was it was mm-hmm. nuts when ISIS put out a DVD of live footage and stray interviews and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. Uh, right before Panopticon came out. It was like, how the hell did they get the money for that? Mostly it was people posting on their MySpace pages or things like that. These short little videos of like uh tour diaries or like making of of albums and stuff like that like i got really really into dream theater for a long span of time like a lot of people who like prog and they were they always were really good about documenting mm-hmm. like how they made the records so they put out the set of dvds of like here's us making images and words and like home footage of of that here's us making scenes from a memory and then you know it being more like discreetly documentary style yeah. as as they went on but like i just and then of course you know th- there's the staples it's like heavy metal parking lot where if you like heavy music whether it's metal or punk you'll see that at some point or like mm-hmm. decline and fall the western civilization mm-hmm. part one which is about punk bands and part two which is about a little bit of hair metal and a little bit of extreme metal in this like weird because like Megadeth is in that hair. one. It, it, yeah, that one's a weird one because it's like you get the legacy of like Ozzy and Lemmy kind of being in there, 
the absurdity of Gene Simmons. And then you got hair metal where it's like the ones who are clearly, and now we know, did become successful, and the ones that no one remembers never became yeah. a thing. <laughs> and they had those dreams of stardom, which is, you know, it's, I live in Los Angeles, so that's, it's a weird part of the legacy of this city that you can literally still go to. I mean, you know, most, at least half or more of those clubs still exist. Um, so it's, yeah, that, that one's an interesting one. And then, yeah, you get Megadeth where it's like, oh shit, here's the real <laughs> s- stuff. Like, like I got, I, I, I. I scoffed at it for the longest time because, like a lot of metalheads, I turned my nose up at hair metal, and it was only as an adult that I was like, "Let's let's take a, like a deep dive of like what are the best records or whatever, and just quietly listen to them. And if I hate them, I'm not going to talk about it. And if I like them, cool. I found a new thing that I like, but that that I finally actually went back and like watched. But I, I watched it the first time. Because someone was like, well, you like Megadeth, you know, you love Rust in Peace, like any, like any mm. God-fearing human being on the face <laughs> of the earth. Uh, watch it, it's funny as hell. Um, but yeah, I just sort of, I, I fell in love with them. Like, I went, uh, Cannibal Corpse put out probably my favorite one I've ever seen, which is this, like, three-hour monolith about their entire history. Yeah. It's just, it's so good. I still like, the Iron Maiden that. one's great, but that, that Cannibal Corpse one is fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. My theory's always been, like, you can access, like, I think 90% of what a band can deliver as far as artistic content or just pure feeling through the music. Like, that's where it all is, is the music. But the more you know about the people in the band and the more that you understand their process and their technique for making the music... That, in my mind, can only enhance the experience of actually consuming it and listening to it. For well, me, sometimes that's the yeah. other. The other weird well, benefit is sometimes is like, you look into it and yeah. you find this like without even necessarily getting to specifics because I don't think I really need to with this. Sometimes you can watch that and find this disconnect that maybe you didn't know before, and that can that's true that can as be well, hard. Yeah. That can be hard mm-hmm. to process, but ultimately that's that's a healthy thing of like, well, maybe this is for other people or maybe this is for this point in my life, but I'm moved. And yeah, it gets yeah, this absolutely. whole yeah. other. But it's, it's always, uh, you know, there's there's a cost in, you know, there's a there's a cost benefit analysis with every fan in terms of how much do they really want to get to know their their favorite musician. Because right. right. Musicians are people, and most of us are flawed, and some of us turn out to be very flawed. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you never know. It, it, I think at least from a historical perspective, it, it's always interesting to just yeah. sort of look at these people, at least from that lens. Yeah. Um, and in that, like, kind of, I think, like, I've for a long time kind of had the ambition at some point to try to... You know, get like an online fun campaign and try to do a documentary. It still seems a little too daunting to try to attempt right now. But like for me, I think I got the idea where it's like, oh, I could maybe do that. Was seeing Sam Dunn's documentary Metal Headbangers mm. Journey and just kind I of love that one and kind of being so jealous of what he got to do with that and everything he's done really since then, like the global yeah, like metal TV is yeah. like this whole thing and it's incredible. I mm-hmm. I love it. Like, I just watched, like, I had, before I even turned it on, I had no idea he produced it, was the um, ZZ Top documentary that's now on Netflix. Yeah. It, it is really good. It's a really well done production, and I even like how they got, 
I think it might have even been Mark Rudolph, but they got someone to do like animation in it um, to <laughs> oh, kind of wow. like have like scenes when like their manager was like talking to the producer stuff like that. Um, it's a really well done documentary, and and it 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 kind of sets the bar I think for like if you want to do a really good documentary. Um, where it's not just sort of the band doing this as kind of like press or filler for, you know, DVD, if those even exist anymore, for bands, like actually do a documentary that people would want to watch on Netflix or something. Like, obviously, like, also speaking of Sam Dunn, the Rush one he did, I think is Oh my God, amazing. I love that one. So there's a thing to be said for like documentaries that have like the documentary, the documentarian's touch, so to speak. Like, yeah. I think even even as you learn about the subjects, you can also learn about like the the the, the translator, so to speak, him or herself. Yeah. And and it, Joe, it's interesting that you have this desire. I think maybe to be one of those translators, to like be a documentarian, like someone who takes the metal world as you see it and turns it into to video and 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 like, I guess it is daunting, isn't it? Like if you think about it, it's like a lot of goddamn work. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is like I mean. You know, not to put it out there so someone maybe steals my idea, but, you know, the hell with it. Um, if, you know, if I could get the funds and I could cover any kind of subject I'd want to do, I'd really love to do, like, a kind of life profile of uh, King Diamond. Like, King I think Diamond. That, I think yeah. that would be, be a, incredible. That would be a dream come true. And no one's really done it yet. And, you know, while he's still, obviously with coronavirus, no one is, but while he's still kicking and performing, you know, it's like... You know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years, maybe that won't be the case. So it's like, it's something I'm like, yeah, that needs to get done soon. And you got to realize, too, metal being sort of, I mean, it's not a young genre in some yeah. relative aspects, but in other aspects, it is young. It's very like, some our legends, a lot of them are still alive. Um, that's not always going to be true. And we're coming to a point where now an entire lifetime can have been, can have been lived. Is that correct? I'm I'm terrible yes. at grammar and I'm the editor. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it, there, there comes a time like where uh, like there will come a time where a lot of the legends will just have passed because just so much time has passed since metal I began. Mean, you know, obviously documentaries are one way to save that to save, of yeah. course, like you mentioned, historical. Yeah. Well, in, in another documentary I love is the the Lemmy documentary. Um, yeah. And you know, I I kind of kick myself because again he was someone who was part of the LA scene. Um, you know, from the 90s onward after he moved from England. And I never got, like, the balls to, like, go up to the rainbow and try to talk to him. Um, but when he died, that was such a huge thing. Um, you know, we're going to have him either on soon or, or potentially on a later one. But um, that night was the was a concert and Repulsion was playing. Like, it was a big show with a few other bands. And they did a tribute to Motorhead, and mm. I, I went wild. Everyone in the crowd went wild. Like, I think yeah. they played the Hammer, and you know. And then there was I think they closed down the Sunset Strip for a day, and just like everyone was was there hanging out, and you know they had that ceremony for Lemmy, and it was it was a big deal because it was you know it was always joke like the world would end and it would be cockroaches, Keith Richards, and Lemmy just chilling. <laughs> Like, cause, cause it's like nothing could kill them. It was like, they'd done everything. They'd been on the road. Nothing could kill them. It's gotta be Keith Richards. And then it's, and then it's like, and then Lemmy died. And it's like, it's like, mm. it's like God was mortal. And it was like, fuck. 
And, and yeah. now, like, you know, it's like you hear the stories about how bad Ozzy has it right now in terms of... I hear he's health. still putting on some really? kick-ass shows, though, like that he's really been putting his foot into it and, like, performing. Well, the sh- I mean, the not, shows... obviously not as of late, but yeah. his latest, yeah. 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 I mean, I saw, I saw some pretty... In terms of if we want to talk of recent years, I saw some recent performances of him in you know the last Black Sabbath concerts, and it wasn't bad. Like in terms mm-hmm. of his abilities lately, it, it was still a great show for as an audience member. I don't know what he or the rest of the band thought because you know, yeah. bands are always critical of their own performances. Yeah. But you know, it's just but he is thing. showing his age. Is yeah. what you're saying? I think yeah. It, and it is a weird thing now. Like even today, as we record this, uh, Little Richard passed. Yeah, uh, and a key part of that Lemmy doc was like I think it's um, what's his name from the Food Fighters, uh, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl, and Lemmy sitting in the studio doing like I think they were recording a song for a Christmas album like Run Rudolph Run, and they're just talking about Little Richard like talking about old school rock and roll, mm-hmm. and it's just this amazing little story and glimpse like sitting down listening to already these two legendary guys talking about someone who they think is legendary yeah and i think that's one of the things that i really sort of treasure a lot about what documentaries in general but also about like this specific topic because like this is admittedly a very um like uh childlike zeal of mine but i see like all this great writing about figures like uh Bob Dylan, about Little Richard, about um, Pink Floyd, about uh, Patti Smith, about, you know, the Ramones, about, you know, and it seems that all that great writing and great, like, delving into, like, this stuff is is art, but maybe it functions differently from Beethoven, maybe it functions differently from William Faulkner, and maybe all of them are just as good as one another, but they do different things. That seems to have pivoted at some point more towards punk punk has a lot of really great really vital writing about it like mm-hmm. a lot a lot of great documentaries a lot of great poetry a lot of great novels a lot but metal seems to have seems to have missed that like as much as i love you know a a, a film like mandy uh like the the sci-fi horror one or i i i admit i'm, I'm apparently kind of the odd one out i i do find a i have a weird admiration of the like charm of metalocalypse these still aren't quite like the it. same thing as no. like it, yeah i i, I yeah. can follow why people would not like it to be fair yeah. <laughs> i'm not here to defend it just to acknowledge yeah. that i find it charming um i i'm a dumb idiot goon for death metal i'm like yeah death metal we'll fuck you <laughs> <laughs> so, like, um, but like I, I i see you know um various spaces in punk getting that kind of very loving, very admir or admiring treatment where it's, you know, being documented and being treated as art where like punk zines are treated as these like holy documents within the world mm-hmm. of punk and they have to live in the underground, but they're respected by these bigger critics. And I'm just like, I want I want metal to have that. I want there to be like like what you were mentioning about King Diamond, where it's this like his worst record is still incredible like i was listening to the puppet master just the other day i wouldn't call that his worst (laughs) okay there are worse ones but that that's somewhere in the middle of the pack but Uh, it's still it like i love it like i like i don't and i'm just like so like i i get i get really stoked especially when i see 
like a loving, a clearly lovingly made documentary about something mm. that lives a, li- a little bit below like what you'd expect. Yeah. Like Metallica you look at the, certainly yeah. deserves something. Oh, but, yeah. you know, there are other things as well that that deserve that kind of love and attention. I'm really I'm really hoping for like that Herzogian look. I want that like I want that almost existential kind of epic and, and in some way like empty and sad viewport that only someone like Werner Herzog could give. I want that look on heavy metal somehow. I wish Herzog would do a heavy metal. I think you know, parts of the Anvil documentary tread close to that, where it's just really? sort of like this. Well, it's I don't sort think of I've like, seen that one. like, there's parts of it where it gets How kind of How did you depressing. miss that one? <laughs> I watched the one. Uh, where's the one where he's in the he's in the wilderness in Russia and uh, uh, with the people who are very secluded from like technology and in the modern mm. world they live. Herzog did a documentary. Oh, of, oh um, yeah. Mm, beautiful people or something. No, it was something of two words or one word, but that one echoed to me with some metal spirit. It's like that idea of seclusion we talked about before, but that it's taken to such an extreme. And I, I guess anytime you take something to an extreme, you can call to mind metal because it often takes I mean, certain that, elements of music to the extreme. But, um, I mean, in mm. some ways, I mean, obviously with, with all the controversy around it, like, if you wanted to talk about a heavy metal documentary with Herzog or with those sort of type of documentarians where they would probably think of it on an artistic critical level, probably mm-hmm. something like, obviously, because of the characters and, and the content of it, probably something like Until the Light Takes Us. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right about that. Because you're dealing like, with, obviously, very extreme people who've done very serious things. And it's in a, the way the documentary is formed, it's very interesting because it juxtaposes sort of Varg on one hand and then Fenris on the other in terms of like two people who came from a very close place to the point they were friends and the very different paths they took. Yeah. My only that is, frustration that is a Herzogian with... narrative. So you're, well, you're correct actually, in pointing out. Yep. <laughs> not my, not my only frustration with those, th- that wing of like black metal document, uh, documenting. Um, cause, uh, but w- one of them at least is that like, I, I, th- I worry sometimes that heavy metal, especially to people outside of it, becomes predominantly defined, especially by something like the mythology of early or, uh, you know, early second wave black metal. Right. Versus like, I'd love to see that for like new wave of British heavy metal bands. Like I, yeah. I mentioned before, the fun game of because of the era of YouTube of typing in like new album space full album enter and just find the weirdest looking cover of a band you've never heard of and find like sometimes it's mediocre sometimes it's mind-blowing yeah. you know, music that's just i guess, I guess langdon what you're up against is the yeah. idea that that if if a, if a person not in, involved in metal sees one metal documentary they're going to assume that that is how all metal is whereas any documentary will always just be a slice of the truth a slice of the view you know it's, it's I, one I, think, take. I think there's a yeah and admittedly there's uh, there's the the inside outside problem of you know we in the world of metal we know that story of mm-hmm. 90s norway and helvetta mm-hmm. and all that so well that i'm like i don't i don't need another thing there i need like uh like that that the grindcore documentary slave to the grind where it's like i knew a good amount of that going in but there were chunks okay. that i was like so things are... uncovered yeah things that are still hidden yeah. Kind of in the depths, yeah, that, like that. That's your target then, as a like if you were to be a documentarian, you would target 
like the, the things that are undiscovered, so to speak. Yeah, because it, because mm. it's less about I think nabbing the obvious dramatic moments and more about giving that fuller. Like this is like the I, I have so almost like the like mundane. The mundane can be very profound, sort of thing. Yeah, because it makes yeah. it it makes it human again. Like that's the thing mm. that I loved about the Cannibal Corpse one of just them talking about like. Everyone loves it because it's just, like, it feels weirdly perfect in an unnameable way. Finding yeah. out that Corpse Grinder loves targets and has an Instagram account devoted to visiting different targets when he's on tour. And just how, like, he's not being ironic. He's like, yeah. no, I just, like, it's it's this nice little slice of, you know, I get to go look at different things and maybe I'll never buy. And it's this normality in the midst of this. And those kinds of angles of like, no, it's, it's real people making this stuff. I want the theater. Like I, you can't like heavy metal and not like the theater. People yeah, who yeah. don't like heavy metal or people who like heavy metal, but are like that band is a bit too, but it's like, check yourself, bro. You bought, <laughs> you bought a lamp of murmur album for $300. You like the theater. We all do. <laughs> like <laughs> don't act above it. Um, I mean, I would, uh, I think the, the weird, and I agree with you. Like the slave to the grind doc, I really like. You really do get kind of a on the ground level view. Like you feel like you're sitting down with everyone. It doesn't feel like anyone's like on the pedestal above you. You know, you're kind of looking up as they're talking. Like you. Part part of that also is as the documentary functions, it keeps on talking about what grindcore is even up to today. Um, and yeah. you know they got fuck the facts and and all these other bands. Um, even though it does spend a lot of time giving you a pretty good thorough history lesson on the genre. Um, I mean, I think until the light takes us, you know, and especially when you deal with black metal, there's always that problem of like, do you, you know, focus on certain parts of it or do you keep up with what's been going on for the last 20 years? And that one decided it wasn't going to try to do that. Like the nearest to that is when you, if you have the DVD or whatever, like all the bonus stuff where like they barely include Garm or Emperor in uh, the actual movie, mm. but if you, they've got like an extra yeah. 30 to 40 minutes for each of those guys where you get their side of the story and everything that's happened since then. And, you know, for Garm, it's a very interesting one for someone who was there in that scene and part of it, but then went into a very different type of music. <laughs> um, and even in the documentary, it's funny because like they're, they're interviewing Garm and he's like on top of like a diving board kind of thing. He's like on top of a diving board and and this uh, this woman gets up there and she's like wants to jump off of it or, or something and she's like oh what are you doing and he's like oh I'm you know doing an interview he's like oh you're a musician he's like explaining who he is to her <laughs> uh, so there there's interesting things like that that you know you know as a documentarian you're an editor and and with the material that you make it's always very clear you can go in many different directions depending on how you edit. And, and you can see that usually when the, whenever a movie does release, you know, extra scenes and stuff that wasn't good. Because then you go, oh, you could have gone that way, or you could have mm -hmm. done this. Yeah, and that's like, always going to be, I, like, as an editor of a website, you know, it's the same deal. Um, you know, there's always more, and there's always less. There's always things to be cut. There's always things to add. But you do the best you can, and I think that comes true of any documentarian as well. Um, like I sort of think yeah. about like one one of the holy grails for me like is is Patty Smith's uh, like autobiography horses mm. and just thinking about how that her talking about being in and around the members of the Ramones like Richard Hell the members of the Clash things like that the mm. like 
Blondie and Talking Heads and how it felt. This was, I think, the big thing for me is it felt human. It didn't short the, the dramatic or artistic value of what they made. And it paid, you know, attention to those as well. But it was also like, this is what it was like as a person in and around this hyperbolically active scene generating right. like monumental legends. But when we were just smoking cigarettes on someone's porch and when, you know, we would go to this guy's house and order pizza and then the pizza wouldn't even show up because they, um, and like when you get that kind of thing, well, one like metal doesn't have quite enough of that yet. I fucking love for more. I love more. And then when it gets it, I go, I go bananas. I'm like, <laughs> well, what do you think it would be? Besides Cannibal Corpse, a good example of one where it gets very personal and human. Um, if, if there has been. How about the Lamb of God Oddly. documentary where uh, I think one of the guitarists, it was either Willie or... Ah, shit. It's, it's too late to remember the names. Uh, punched Randy out pretty bad in a Ooh. fight. And so it was like it was like watching my favorite band kind of like disintegrate on screen and like it makes you realize, wow, these people are human as fuck. In an odd way, I mean, that's reminding me of some kind of monster. Like, I mean, you you really do get a a dirt and all kind of look at where where your hero idol worship kind of diminishes a little bit because you're like, you can't think of them quite that way anymore. I'm kind of of the persuasion, like, where I think the people that I maybe idolize or look up to or I think who are very talented, like... I want to know that they're human. I don't want to. I don't want superheroes among us. I don't want people who are just so goddamn good that. Well, anyone who's making, yeah. I and mean, they all the, are human. Yeah, Everyone is yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. Every even you know. Like, I mean, Robert Plant's or anyone from like the biggest rock bands of ever in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a matter of access and being able to see it. it right. No right. matter the guys in Tool or whatever. No matter. What and the desire of, to show it. Speaking yeah. of Tool, yeah. No matter what veil of mystery that a band is able to get away with, behind the mm-hmm. scenes, people are human in, in yeah. whatever capacity of good and evil that is. Life lesson for this episode. Uh, we're all human. <laughs> I, I paused when you asked me of other good examples because the first thing I thought of was some kind of monster, but mm-hmm. I almost didn't want to say it because it has... It has a reputation I don't think it deserves. I think we mentally attach it to not liking Saint Anger the record, which is fair. I'm not Mm. a huge fan of it, but I can follow why people would like it. But in terms of a documentary doing exactly what I mentioned of like all of a sudden Metallica weren't these world conquering heroes. They weren't the hyperbolically talented songwriters that generated, you know, four perfect albums back to back. Like I love all four of those albums more than I love like human living human people. (laughs) They're just, they're, they're, they're holy texts to me. All of a sudden it was like, not even just that they're people. It was the bravery that they had because they had the ability to say no to that, but they showed them being shitty, catty, callous, like, and the reality of like, you know, people with substance, uh, issues like if you get old enough you will know people with substance yeah. issues you know they all um, sat and down they and looked that. at that final cut of that episode or that documentary and said yes we are going to release this embarrassing shit to the public and that yeah. and that balls, that yeah. i think is like yeah it's mm-hmm. like that amount of like and they they've they 
leapt onto that with like their um the the footage that they release just all the time now of them just like as people and people cringe at it but it's like yeah I, maybe I now I find maybe that for a of... next episode it does that conflict then become entertainment for all of us mm. <laughs> in a bad way maybe I don't know <laughs> well I, you know I think as an artist you're always aware that you know you know even when you make an album you know you put your heart into it it's about maybe something that personally happened in your life. Yeah. Some fans are going to latch onto that and, and appreciate it for its value, and some fans are going to ignore that and take whatever entertainment or other value they find in it. You, mm-hmm. you only have so much that you can control in that. Right. Next, we're thrilled to be joined by one of the keynote speakers of the previously mentioned documentary Slave to the Grind. He's one of the godfathers of Grind, Scott Carlson. Not only was Carlson a founding member of likely the first Grindcore band, Repulsion, who are still going strong, but he has a long legacy within the extreme music scene that includes membership in the Demo Days of Death, the Doom Metal Legends Cathedral, Death Supergroup Project Death Breath, Japanese Doomsters Church of Misery, and hardcore crossover band Septic Tank. Carlson was born and raised in Flint, Michigan, where Repulsion was formed, but now lives in Los Angeles, where he also serves as U.S. label rep for Rise Above Records. So, without further ado, here's Scott. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Uh, I was hanging in there. <laughs> as, you know, everyone Sorry, probably in interviews these days is talking about, um, how are you holding up during quarantine and everything? Well, I've been fortunate enough to um, still be working. So I'm working from home. Uh, I feel incredibly grateful to be able to do that. I know a lot of people are struggling with money and um, work out there right now. So uh, it's great to be able to do that. And uh, that's about it. You know, I mean, I've worked from home in the past, different jobs. So it's not completely foreign to me. yeah, I'm, it's pretty cool. I live out in the valley. I, moved, I lived in Hollywood for 20 years. But a, oh, really? A year and a half ago, I moved out to the valley and uh, to a house. And it's cool. You know, we got space. My wife is working at the other end of the house. We cross each other's paths at lunchtime and after <laughs> when we're done working at the end of the day. So, yeah, it's cool. I, uh, what part of the valley? I'm up in uh, Sun Valley. Uh, we live in Lake Balboa, which is like the far west side of Van Nuys. It, okay. It's actually at the end of our street. It's Encino. So we live nice. right by Lake Balboa Park. How you know is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, mm-hmm. I have a good idea of that. Um, you, you know how it is with LA people. We usually kind of keep yeah. to our little it's sectors. It's west of you, probably six or seven miles west of you. Yeah. Probably because it takes so goddamn long to get anywhere in that city. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Chicago, by the way. So a little uh, bit smaller. I, li- I lived there for like six years as well. Okay, cool. What neighborhood? Oh, let's see. When I first moved there, I lived in like Wrigleyville, okay. just a little bit north of the ballpark. 
yeah. which was like a hip neighborhood to live in back then. This is right. like early yeah. 90s, like 91, 92. And then shortly after that, I moved to uh, Bucktown. Okay. And that was uh, before Echo Park. Of, yep. Yeah. That would have been before, like, the massive gentrification wave. Absolutely. And all that. I mean, yeah, it's totally crazy from what I hear. Now, I haven't been to Chicago in yeah. seven or eight years. But even then, it was pretty shocking to see. Because it, it yeah. seemed like back when I lived there that there would never be, like, a Starbucks or a right. Urban Outfitters on North Avenue or like, Milwaukee Avenue. Like two of them, yeah. <laughs> I remember when the first, I think it was a Starbucks or somebody opened, a, like, a hipster coffee shop or something. People used to throw bricks through the window Ow. all the time. And I thought, well, this neighborhood's never going to flip. This was, you know, 22, yeah. 23 years ago right. before I moved away. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Great city. Yeah. Um, so was, you know, you were born and raised in Flint, Michigan. Um, where was the first place you moved to when you, when you left there? Chicago. You know, I thought many times about moving to Detroit, and I was like, well, I mean, to, Detroit um, is a great place. I, I really like Flint, actually. It's a cool place, and there were some musicians that lived there that were just absolutely fucking mind-blowing players and really innovative um, musicians. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, to me, Detroit just seemed like a bigger version of Flint. So when I was ready to leave, um, I figured... There's no point in moving to Detroit. You think LA spread out. Detroit is like this little downtown area and then just suburbs, you know, for miles. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it probably doesn't cover quite as much, uh, you know, land as LA, but it's a very similar thing. Like, not a lot of people, well, it's changing, it's going back, but for a long time, most of the people that lived in the city were not people that you would like see at shows or anything like that. It was, that was all people from the burbs. So, um, I just felt like, you know, skip over Detroit. I went to Chicago a couple times and had a great time there and, um, just seemed like a cool place to. What, start uh, over. what eventually brought on the move to LA? Um, I was, you know, I, I left cathedral and, um, you know, not because I wanted to, not because they wanted me to necessarily. It was like, it was a time where we were, when I joined them, they were on Columbia, signed to Columbia. There was lots of money being thrown around. I was able to live in Chicago and still, you know, rehearse in England and shit. It was really great. Um, and uh, at that time, Lee, Lee now lives in London, but at the time he still lived in Coventry, which is... It's kind of like Flint, you know. It's probably one of the things that Lee and I bond uh, over that we don't really talk about is that the, we're from very similar backgrounds. And um, Coventry is like a mid, you know, like a Midlands city, which Midlands is kind of like the Midwest of the UK. And Birmingham is like their Detroit. And I would say Coventry is like Flint. It's like a smaller version of Birmingham outside of Birmingham. And, uh, like maybe an hour away or something. And, you know, it was bombed flat during World War II and it was a very industrial town. It's been rebuilt and it's a cool place. You meet a lot of interesting people. The specials are from there. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously Lee is from there. So um, that sort of like was, in, you know, not a place I wanted to move to when uh, 
when the time came uh, when I was leaving Cathedral or when it, when we got dropped from Columbia and it was like, okay, either you have to either leave the band or move to England. And I was like, man, I really don't want to live out in some industrial town like the one where I grew up. You know? Right. Was there a particular reason why L.A.? rather than New York or... Oh, oh, yeah, getting back to that, it was like... Oh, well, Matt Olivo, the guitarist of Repulsion, uh, was already living out here. <laughs> His path to coming out here was really interesting. He's a um, really great musician. And uh, after he, he got interested in, um, like, film scores and um, television scores, and uh, one of our friends um, who used to play bass in, in an early incarnation of Repulsion was uh, um, his father had a show on uh, public radio that I think was nationally syndicated that was called Music from the Movies. And um, he had like an insane like 20,000 LP collection and it was mostly soundtrack albums. Mm. And uh, so he got Matt um, hooked up with this. There's actually a magazine called Soundtrack Monthly. And uh, <laughs> Matt, like, started reading it and, like, entered a contest, I think, to... He sent in a demo, and he won the contest, and he won a uh, an internship with Jonathan Wolf, who did the music for, like, I think he... I don't know, what's that show? The um, Law and & Order? And mm -hmm. he did the Seinfeld theme, which is, you know, one of the most, you know, recognizable, um, yeah. you know, television themes ever. So Matt came out to LA to do an internship with him and then just, you know, started working in post and stayed out here. And uh, when I was kind of at my wits end with Chicago, as far as I like, couldn't find a decent job, I was, you know, I mean, I was working at, I had cool jobs, you know, worked at some cool places and the last job I worked was at Berlin nightclub on Belmont Avenue, which is a great place. But um, I was just, you know, it wasn't going to like take me into retirement. So I, uh, I decided well, I was trying to figure out where to go. And I was talking to Matt on the phone one day and he was like, give LA a try, you know? So I came out here and he got me a job at the post house. He was working at in the, um, in the vault, you know, like entry level position. And I just sort of, um, worked my way up from there into, I started doing, I met a guy who was in like a uh, hair metal band that was on MTV in the 80s, who was working in the audio department. Him and I hit it off and he got me a job in the audio department. And after like I'd been out here for a year and a half, I was um, like a credited sound effects editor on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And uh, wow. from there, I, 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 yeah, my name, if you look at certain seasons, I can't remember which ones because I, you know, wasn't really paying super close attention. But there's like two seasons there where my name is in the credits as one of the audio, um, like sound designers and audio um, editors. So uh, after that, um, I started like doing DVD authoring and, and doing voting and so I've just been working in this industry now for like 20 years, but I owe it all, all to Matt, you know, he's the one that, cause I was kind of like not a big fan of LA just from my experiences coming here on tour and playing clubs. And then afterwards, somebody from the record company is like taking you out to someplace on the strip. And, um, I don't have a problem with the strip, but it was just like, you know, LA just didn't seem like a place where I wanted to live. 
until I gave it a try. And then I realized like, oh, there's a whole other level. You know, there's many layers to LA and some of them are incredible. And um, I'm glad that a lot of people don't have a bad impression of LA because it's already really crowded. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, Joseph, I know you're a, a movie buff and like LA is like the Mecca. I don't care, New York, London, any place you want to go. L.A. is the place for, we have all the directors are living here. They come down to the theater with their own prints under their arm and show them. It's abs- It's just incredible. It's like Christmas every week when you, you know, see what these, um, these uh, you know, curators are, are playing. Unfortunately, right now, all the theaters are closed, but, you know, the New Beverly, which Tarantino owns and, has a great staff of people that are showing all kinds of insane films that you never thought you'd see. And, um, you know, the Egyptian with Jim and cinematic void and the beyond fest and everything else that goes on here, Bob Morosky, all these people that are just like, you know, giving of themselves, Joe Dante, these guys who just give and give like to back to the, the movie nerds. And that was something that I really latched onto. I think, the first day I was here, maybe the second day I was here, I went to the New Beverly and saw a bird with a crystal plumage in Suspiria, um, double bill at the New Bev. And that was it. I was like, at things like that. And like all the old bands that were still playing. Uh, I remember the first night I was here, the very first night I was here, I landed in LA. I, I went to Matt's house and I opened up the newspaper and I saw that the nip drivers were playing at the Viper room and I fucking, jumped in my car and drove down there immediately. It was, you know, just things like that. Like LA, just things happen all the time where you're just like, I can't believe this is going on and I get to be there. You know, it's, that's, that's what kept me here once I got here. I, I definitely have a, like a mixed relationship with the city. Sometimes I kind of feel like I want to get out of it. And sometimes I really do appreciate that. Like, Nowhere other than like maybe New York or London where it's like this much stuff and opportunity to see and experience things where things from around the world are coming in. It's, it's kind of crazy how much you can miss if you're not paying attention. Yeah. Um, Like for, for the audience listening to this, like um, Scott and I have bumped into each other a number of times at what he mentioned, the beyond fest, which is at the famous uh, Egyptian theater in Hollywood and that is always something I look forward to every year. And of course, I'm in the back of my head, like all the metal festivals that have been canceled. I'm waiting for that to kind of get the nod that it's not going to happen. Although maybe it'll happen digitally online or something. Yeah, uh, it is sad. We, you know, Repulsion have canceled uh, a bunch of shows that were, you know, things that were on our bucket list, you know, like places we were going to play Montreal this year. We were going to play Seattle. Mm. Hopefully we're still going to play, I think, uh, Atlanta in October. There was this crazy festival called Oblivion Access that was going to happen in June. In Austin. I was, uh, I was going to go photograph and uh, do the whole <laughs> coverage of that whole thing. That lineup was sick. Yeah. Yeah. I was sucks. so looking forward to that. And I Me love too. going to Austin Anyway, That's a good city. Great people there, and great food, and fucking amazing bars, and I Hell just yeah. fucking love Austin. But so I that was shit. really heartbreaking when that got canceled, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that fucking uh, Cycle Las Vegas isn't going to happen. Which oh, it, it got announced earlier this week. It's it's off. Yep. 
Oh, shit, I didn't even see it. Uh, we knew it, there. but it's now it's real, so. <laughs> yeah, I actually knew it too, but I <laughs> didn't know yeah. if it was announced yet or not. But yeah, <laughs> that really sucks. It does. You know, yep. We were supposed to play, Merciful Fate was on the bill. It was, you know. That was that was a dream lineup. Like, Emperor. And, and, I, and I really hope they get most, if not all, of the bands for next year. And, and hopefully I think next most year. fests are turning out that way, where they're getting most to re-sign and do the next year. Yeah, most it's of the a long way away. signed on yeah. to do have asked us to, to hold over mm-hmm. to next year, which I'm totally fine with. Yeah. So, hey, maybe we'll all see each other at Psycho Vegas 2021. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> oh. It's really almost work. a shame that the, I thought, you know, maybe Vegas is going to, like, come back a little sooner than everybody else. But, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting I mean, that, we talk about video and like I guess the 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 conference between video and audio like like what what makes like good video content as far as movies and film but also metal documentaries but also what like makes good music and how do you connect those two into one and I think that's an interesting point that you bring up also your involvement in in, in documentaries as well like just like how do you like you've been I, I, Scott have you been to Psycho Vegas at one of the editions yet? I've been to all but one. Okay. I even, so, been, I even yeah. went to a bunch of the when Psycho was in Anaheim mm-hmm. or Santa Ana or whatever. I went to a few of those yeah. as well. Yeah. It's like, how do you capture that experience and translate it to someone else? Like, how do you? Because it's it's surreal being there. It's because it's so curated. You're in Vegas. You're in a casino. It's all very. It's all very. It's all very authentic feeling, like the experience. Like and like uh, sense. Yeah. Back in, a, I played guitar in a in a, like a garage, like heavy rock band called the Super mm-hmm. from LA, and uh, we did a we did a um, garage rock festival in Vegas at the Gold Coast Casino, mm-hmm. uh, which is across the freeway from Caesar's Palace. Um, it's like an old blue hair casino. It's like one of the. It's, it was probably built in the fifties or something like that. It's a really great place. It's got a bowling, huge bowling alley underneath of it and everything. It's just Shit. so trashy, Vegasy. They, yeah. they sell um, cocktails in like a 12-inch tall cowboy boot, plastic cowboy boot. Yeah. And uh, we did that. That was in like 2000, I think. And it was like the Dictators were there, which, you know, has Ross the Boss from Manowar. He was in the Dictators before that. But, you know, for the metal people listening, Ross the Boss. Um so I was like, he walked by me and I handed him my plastic cowboy boot full of Jack and Coke and he started chugging it down. And um, it was crazy. People were like, the, the casino banned it from ever happening again because, <laughs> at, at least there. That's how you know. <laughs> there were people were having sex in the elevators. It was way more out of control than the than any of the psychos I've been to. Yeah. And it was like, uh, you know, there were bands that were big back then, like the Murder City Devils and the Donnas and... Um, I can't, everybody that was big in that whole garage rock scene of the early 2000s, late 90s was there. And it was fucking great. And it was the first time I'd ever been to a music festival, like a multi-day music festival in a casino. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. You know, like it's such a genius idea that it's amazing that it took so many years for people to start doing it again because... Yeah. Well, it probably took maybe it took a while to convince a casino casino to take it on because there was mm-hmm. the, the garage rock one, and then there was also like a rockabilly one that used to happen in the early two thousands. But mm. um, when Psycho moved to Vegas, I was like, "This is fucking great." I already know how this is going to turn out because I've been to a music festival at a casino, and it's amazing because the bars are open twenty four hours, the restaurants are open twenty four hours, so it's like 
unlike when you go to a festival in Europe and everything shuts and then you go back to your hotel and there's nothing to do until the next day when you, mm-hmm. you know, or, or you sleep in a fucking tent <laughs> in a field, a muddy field or something. Um, I don't, but you know, I know a lot of people that do and no offense yeah. to my, I mean, those people have all my respect because that's fucking true dedication. I do want to go to that one. Joe, what's it called? A fire in the mountains where you tent. Oh, the, the one tent. in, uh, Montana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's a that's a that's a pricey pricey trip though. Um, yeah, but yeah, like the festival aspect, I love. I love that heavy metal fests are like in and like it's you got to like it's almost like you have to go to one a year, like a like a day, yeah. like a yearly sort of like uh, pilgrimage. pilgrimage you have to make to like experience this like three days or two days or whatever of like just saturation and heavy metal and like yeah you talk to everyone you meet everyone you know and psycho vegas seems to be the centrum it seems to be like the the key one i mean i would joe we ran into so many people there it's like you know yeah andrew andrew was there last year and, mm-hmm. and i scott like you i think i've i've been to every all of them including the um one when it was in santa Ana, at least for a year or two um yeah i mean festivals are always interesting that especially the big ones because you'll get your friends from abroad will show up um, mm-hmm. and you always get that interaction where artists and fans are usually on the same floor at the same bars drinking and talking and you know shooting the shit yeah. i like that 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 the hours where it's like everyone is kind of like really fucked up and loose and it's like you know between the hour like when the bands have just finished playing Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's like between like midnight and like three or four a.m. And everybody's just kind of like totally on fucking fire. And uh, <laughs> there's just some amazing conversations. It and is like the energy is palpable. Like I remember I, I was doing I was doing uh, show photography at uh, at Psycho Vegas, like in the pit, like in front of so many bands that I thought like oh, I'd like these bands. But. Like even Mogwai blew my fucking mind like to the next like level, and it was funny seeing like a band like Mogwai play next to like Carcass, you know, yeah. on the same stage. What a crazy combination! But hey, they both sort of worked out in the same kind of drama. And I just like that festivals are full of that. I think that's a great way to get like the metal community like going. You know, that that's kind of the hotbed. And now with the coronavirus, it's like every fest this year is probably canceled. If it isn't canceled already, it probably is. Yeah. And. uh what do you do without that? Like I don't know. You got, Until you've yeah, seen yeah. Hellhammer play in a hockey arena, you can't understand <laughs> the heartbreak like when one of these things. Like if you haven't exactly. been, I feel sorry for you. But I feel even more sorry for you if you have been, and you've seen Hellhammer play in a hockey arena, and mm. now you know that this year is canceled. Yeah, because you know what you're missing, and mm-hmm. it's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, but you know we've we've got bigger fish to fry right now i guess you know yeah oh and, and like andrew mentioned you know one way you know to deal with the boredom if if we are those stuck at home is you know checking out all the things we put off including you know documentaries and things like that and you know we wanted to have you on especially because um slave to the grind got released to the public was put up on youtube and we all watched it thoroughly enjoyed it and you're included of course because you know, you're the founder, main member of Repulsion. Repulsion, in many ways, started Grindcore. Um, so what was it like getting um, 
you know, the filmmakers reaching out to you and trying to get you included in that? It's, you know, it's really funny how um, that whole, I, you know, th there's something that I've said before about this music that is more, even more startling to me than the fact that people still like my band is the fact that like people still like death metal and it's still relevant and totally fucking blows my mind. Like I, you know, it just seemed like when it was happening, like that it was on the verge of burning out at any moment, you know, because right. to me, it was all about extremity. And when it, when I was involved in it, when I was like, really my heart and my mind were like completely involved in it. Uh, things were like uh, every week, you'd hear something that was like, holy shit, this is completely taking things to another level. And uh, I don't think that really happens anymore. And I don't think it's because I'm old and jaded. I just think that, uh, which I am, but I mean, I think that there's just, uh, you know, there's there's only so far you can take music uh, with without it turning into something that's not music. So you have like, uh, you know, notes and, you know, melodies and things like that, <laughs> that people stay inside those boundaries. And I mean, of course, the production has gotten like incredibly fucking heavy. Um, but as far as like the ideas um, in, you know, the song structure and everything, it's it's kind of it kind of hit a wall at a certain point, maybe in the early 90s or something. And it really hasn't. It's but it, but at the same time, people keep coming up with new ways to express it and it's still fucking around and it, young people are still like attracted to it. And I would have thought that death metal would have been just like a fad, but yeah. all these things, um, I, I would say thrash metal was more of a fad because, because now there's like new bands playing thrash and it's almost like a novelty, you know, it's like, uh, Oh, these guys are like wearing big white sneakers and skinny jeans, like fucking Exodus and Metallica did back in 1983. But death metal never went away. You had like, it evolved from the early bands like us and death and possessed obviously before us, but, um, and then just immediately went to cannibal corpse and deicide and morbid angel was, you know, sort of in between, like they were definitely starting up right when we were kind of stopping. And so there were all these bands that just sort of kept it going. And those bands have had like, you know, decades long careers. Um, and to me, that just, <laughs> it's just insane to me that Morbid Angel and Cannibal Corpse have been making records and surviving for 20, 25 years. It's 30 years, maybe even. It's just fucking crazy to me. So getting back to the movie, you know, it was really not a surprise to me that, that these guys were like, oh, we want to talk to you because it's just become sort of like accepted now that like, Repulsion has this place in the history of all this music. Um, obviously, we're you know happy that people still give a shit about that record 35 years later or whatever. We've all moved on and done other things, and but you know all of those things that we've done have all been like you know Repulsion was sort of the springboard for which all of these other opportunities for me, you know Cathedral and Death Breath and Septic Tank and death breath and all these different things they they all happened because of my you know little experiment back in the 
mid eighties with Matt to, to put this band together. So, um, it was cool that these guys were making a documentary. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be like. And, you know, there's a lot of bands in there that I'm sort of like not super familiar with, but, um, it's crazy to see, um, how that sort of music still has legs after all these years. When you, um, finally saw the movie, was there anything in it that you found surprising or interesting that really stuck with you? Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but it was like, uh, I didn't realize anal cunt was a grindcore band. <laughs> Cause they took up a lot of, uh, they took up yeah. a lot of, they took up a lot of time in that film. And obviously Doug, the, must he must love them uh i never i never thought of them as a grindcore band i guess i don't know they just seemed like they did whatever you know they did all sorts of musical styles i guess you know from an attitude standpoint you know they sort of like created maybe like the whole sort of like porno grind uh type of um uh at least the fucking aesthetic for it you know maybe not necessarily the musical blueprint but like they were definitely like, you know, taking the whole gross out offensive thing to another level, which, you know, I was trying to do myself, but we were a little more like a, a little more restrained anyway. <laughs> and we, we have some like lyrics that I would take back, you know, now if I was going to write them at age 54. But, um, you know, there's a couple lines in our songs. Where I'm like, eh, that's, that was pretty fucking stupid. But at the same time, uh, you know, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't get any, we didn't even get close to fucking Seth Putnam. I mean, yeah, I, I kind of have a similar experience in that. I'd never had that much of a background of anal cunts. And I always just thought of them as more joke than anything. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to see kind of like, also how polarizing for people in the scene that band is, um, you know, having never really kind of dived toward it. Um, you know, what, what do you think about these days when, you know, you do have, you know, whether it's a shame we don't have our other writer Langdon on here because he's obsessed with death metal. Um, but, you know, whether grindcore or death metal, you know, you do have bands that, and I think you're right like sonically what you can do has kind of already been explored, but it's kind of amazing how people can refine it and find new ways to put their own spin on things. Yeah. You have death metal albums these days and especially like ones that have come out in the last 16, 18 months that like people have really gone wild for. And I'm, it's not in a way where it's like, Oh, there's gotta be something to be excited about. It's more of like, these guys are like twisting the rules in a way that like really plays with your mind. And uh, you kind of start to appreciate those bands who may 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, you might look back and make, Oh, those guys were doing it then. And Scott, I guess being older, you've come to that point where people are coming to you and they're saying, Oh, look back on your life and tell us what it was like. Cause we're interested in how it was. Do you ever like get any kind of weird reaction to like kind of knowing or having that wisdom, I guess of, of time um, and then seeing kind of a new w world of internet music and sharing that, does it seem different to you? Does it seem better or worse? Or There was a, a time where I was like, uh, like around the time when I first moved out here um, 20 years ago, people would come up to me uh, occasionally 
and recognize me from repulsion and even though i had short hair at the time and was not playing death metal uh or metal at at all at the time and and i was sort of trying to you know there i think um everybody sort of goes through this where there's a point where you're just sort of like i just kind of want to like be known for something besides that you know and uh i was sort of like you know struggled i i think matt and myself we everybody in the band um at, at some point sort of like struggled with like oh, i just want to fucking distance myself from that a little bit you know not that i'm ashamed of it or anything i'm totally i've always been proud of it but it's like i just kind of want to put that in my back pocket and forget about it uh-huh. and then um the internet sort of you know made it impossible to get away from that and after a while you just have to go you know what i'm going to stop uh resisting and just embrace this for what it is and okay yeah that's an and, interesting uh, yeah that's it yeah the um so, go, go ahead um I mean, are there any, I mean, how much do you, do you keep up? I mean, I see you at shows all the time in the area. Um, do you feel like you're usually keeping up with, you know, the latest stuff? Like, I, I guess the easiest touchdown would be like everyone freaking out over like blood incantation or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely like the death metal landmark. I think of, uh, sure, of the recent ones. Yeah. That, that one kind of touched everyone. Yeah, I thought that record was great. I mean, I it's it's rare that I hear a death metal album nowadays where I would listen to it for more than like you know fifteen minutes. Gotcha. And uh, I liked that record a lot. I I thought that um, I didn't really hear anything like wow, this is totally new. But I heard a, a, it just sounded like vital. You know, that's that's really all that matters. You don't have to like reinvent yeah. the wheel or anything. It was just like. Uh, this record sounds vital, and that pretty much tells you that, like, okay, this that means the if there's even one band that's still doing it um, right mm-hmm. or doing something that has life, you know, that you can feel the the energy in it, like, then that means that the music is still relevant and vital. And uh, Blood Incantation, you know, uh, rightfully so. Like, it, it, there's just not that many bands playing heavy music that can sort of um tap into that that magical energy that you know there's that there's that thing when you play a record and you just know that it's fucking it's it just has energy and and vitality to it by like goosebumps or something where it's just like you're kind of like like you're seeing like the grand canyon for the first time or so like holy shit yeah yeah Yeah, when i heard blood incantation it reminded me of when i first heard uh altars of madness by morbid angel and it was like uh it just sort of like, uh, like, oh, these guys have like done something a little different with this with this style, yeah. you know. That, that like, would have excited Langdon very much. <laughs> I think for doom metal, like, um, you know, I think my like the latest Crypt sermon was kind of that for me. It was like, ah, oh, this is this is it. This is really hitting that mark of just like classic candle mass kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, like. I guess you said you're 54, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I'm wondering, like, have you seen, in a way, like, history, or at least in metal, kind of repeat itself? Have you seen any, like, kind of like, hey, we've done this and figured it out already, but you're kind of doing it again? I mean, I think we have that natural progression in humanity to kind of look back and maybe repeat some styles or some ideas. But 
I wonder if you're if 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 your distance so far in life has told you anything about repetition or or how it keeps no, going. No, not really. I mean, what's it, what's weird to me, I guess, a little bit is the kids who um, a couple of years ago we went to uh, Lee Lee Dorian and I went to uh, Maryland Death Fest together because mm. it was like uh, Uncle Acid who were on Rise Above. It was their first. Um, I was there that year. I think yeah, that was, it was their first U.S. show. And uh, so we went out there to, you know, hang, support them and hang out with them for their first U.S. show. And uh, all day long we were watching. I saw Sacrifice play that day, who are one of my all-time favorite uh, thrash bands. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sacrifice from Toronto. Just incredible band and awesome dudes. But um, they've always, I've always looked up to them. I've always thought they were just fucking stellar. But uh, they played... Um, but yeah, it was just weird, like, um, you know, standing there with another person roughly my age and just looking at all the kids with these patches on their jackets and, and like, none of them had like a new band on their jacket. <laughs> like, no, nobody had like a blood incantation back patch. Right, right. Not to point that band out. I'm just saying like. You know, there wasn't like a new band in the middle of the jacket. It was like Judas Priest and Man of War and fucking Slayer and Cannibal Corpse and bands that have been around forever. Bands that are definitely not their bands as far as like their generation. That's like their dad's bands, you know. It's exactly, like a, yeah. like when I was 12 or 13, I didn't run around with a Beatles fucking back patch or a Stones back patch. You know, I had Van Halen and then I fucking... Yeah upgraded to Judas Priest and Slayer, et cetera. Those were my bands. Those were the bands that were like, they were new. And it was kind of like, if I had the back patch, I was telling you about that band. And if you asked about it, I was going to fucking school you on like, dude, you need to check this fucking band out. Yeah. You know, this is the, it was like, you know, like the Pied Piper, like walking around with a trumpet, fucking telling everybody about Slayer <laughs> or Van Halen or, uh, or, Judas Priest or whatever, and like now, uh, it seems a little bit depressing to me to see kids still with the Judas Priest, Van Halen, and fucking Slayer back patches. You know, it's like, like you know, like I know already. Yeah, yeah. yeah or it's like you know, it, you guys just don't have that band that defines your fucking generation. Mm. And I guess that's kind of the difference between you know, even I guess really the last band I can think of like a rock a heavy rock band that defined a generation would be nirvana after mm. that it's just like kids just you still see kids with nirvana shirts you fucking buy them at target i think you can buy nirvana yeah. shirts or whatever but so um it's not that i like pissing on the music scene or anything like that i think it's great that people still love this stuff it's just a little bit weird as an older person to see like a whole like not one but probably like two now generations of kids who don't have a band that like define that that's like their fucking right. their Pied Piper, their fucking the band that's leading them down the path of of, you know, fucking sin. <laughs> Do you think that's because you know I've seen some music criticism in the wider world kind of discuss this that you know, everyone always says, oh, oh rock, rock is dead, guys, punk is dead. Guys. Huh? Broke up a little bit. Oh, okay. Still good? 
Yep. Can you hear us? All right, cool. Joe, just go ahead and restart your question. We'll cut there. Okay. Um, I was just going to ask, you know, based on what you had said, um, you know, sometimes there's music criticism out there that kind of says, you know, in more serious ways, stuff like rock is dead. But what it really means is just that rock as a cultural icon is kind of been over taken by especially in i guess the last 20 and definitely the last 10 years uh hip-hop and pop um, i agree I mean, you can kind of look at you know rock bands don't really play the super bowl anymore they used to like 10 15 years ago um yeah and the, you know in that same way that like when we think of like the defining artists of a year defining artists of a generation in the last 10 15 years it's, it definitely does seem like in terms of a numbers game, it's pop and hip hop. Mm. Yeah, but even those, even those bands, are they like uh, even these the hip hop bands that are popular today? Are they like changing the world the way that like the Rolling Stones or Nirvana or Guns N' Roses or Metallica did? It doesn't seem like that to me. Maybe it doesn't not. seem like these bands are are like, or even you know N.W.A. and there were there were certain hip hop acts along the way that sort of like just changed everything. Um, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, all these guys. Are they still like having that much impact? It seems like people are just more distracted by their phones and video games and shit. And that that's not necessarily like I mean, it's a bad thing for for people who really live for music. But as far as like a Overall, um, it's not a bad thing. People are still receiving, you know, messages and, and being stimulated by whatever content they're absorbing. But it's just different. People just don't. Music has taken a backseat. Um, and, and maybe that is a fucking bad thing, you know, that music is not as... Because to me, music is spiritual. And, and um, maybe it's maybe it is a bad thing that music isn't so prevalent in people's lives anymore. I think I agree. I mean, yeah, no, go ahead, Joe. I mean, it's, it's touching on a lot of things because in the first segment, we were talking about our own histories and Andrew and previously Langdon and I, you know, we're of a generation where the internet started to become a thing. So when we were adolescents, like I still remember buying cassette tapes, like the first car I ever had didn't even have a CD deck. Like I had to put tapes in it. And in, in having those experiences of putting on an album, putting on headphones and listening to it, you know, before you maybe go to bed, before you got to school the next day, you know, and, and that seems to happen less. Like, and part of it is, you know, like I mentioned that, like, yeah, I have to, like, you know, mow like 20 lawns to get enough allowance to then go to the record store and buy a $20 CD for something. And these days it's like, oh, just open up Spotify. Boom. There. Everything. So it's just kind of a different world. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, do we have too many good bands nowadays? Like, um, just too much of everything. Yeah. You know, kind of like an overload where it's like, you know, there might be a lot of good bands, but maybe there are no great bands anymore. Is that true? I don't know. Like, have we replaced the idea of, like, there being a couple greats and, like, a lot of, like, pretty good with a lot of very good, but nothing really that great? You know, we kind of diffused or dispersed the music world. 
don't know. I, I don't even think you can blame the bands as much as you, and you can't even blame the people, the, the fans. It's just that music just takes up less of their time than it used right. than when I was a kid. Um, I remember when like fucking Pong came out. So, you know, that was like a, a new distraction. Like, oh shit, here's yeah. a video game. Like, uh, that's going to take up like, but still I would play it for 15 minutes and get bored and go back and start listening to my Kiss records yeah. again. Um, but I think that, you know, people play these video games now that are like a fucking journey that you go on that like, takes weeks to complete and they get absorbed by other things that, that are not like laying in their room, staring at the ceiling, listening to the stereo. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, go ahead. Some, some, something I wanted to touch on, especially because it is looking like we're not too far away from being probably like at a full hour. Um, mm-hmm. But minutes. I wanted, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about because something I've been trying to write, and I need to do more of it. Um, <laughs> but try to write Invisible Oranges is the intersection of horror movies, movies in general, but horror movies specifically, uh, and metal, extreme music. And you know, you're definitely a guy who, at the beginning of grindcore and, and death metal, had that. Like you've got a song about Reanimator. And <laughs> two about one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> two on one album. <laughs> I mean, it's a great movie. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, it is. It's it, it, the whoever said it's the Citizen Kane of horror films was not wrong. <laughs> That's great. Um, so you know, in general, we can dice through it a bit more. But um, you know, why do you think there is that connection between? metal, extreme music, and, and horror? Uh, for me, it was the, um, you know, the energy. The, like, the, the feeling that I got from watching Frankenstein for the first time was very similar to the feeling I got from, or, or you know, like, going to see... Actually, Frankenstein is probably not a good, uh, a good example. Like, when I went to see Dawn of the Dead in the theater, I, was, I felt my DNA was rearranged that day. <laughs> and like the, I felt the same way when I heard Venom for the first time. You know, it's like there's this certain um, energy and you know, like mystery and uh, just threat involved in some of this stuff. That um, that's that's to me where it comes together. You know, it's like like when I saw Dawn of the Dead, I never felt more alive <laughs> than when I left the theater. Love that. I went with yeah. I went with my neighbor and uh, who was like my age and his um, girlfriend's older brother took us to see it and uh, I came home. It was like a Sunday matinee, like the weekend it came out, and, and uh, I got home from the theater and I I was like petrified. It was broad daylight and my parents were home, and uh, we had a in Michigan. All the houses had basements and we had like a freezer in the basement. And I was like, I wanted to go get a popsicle and I was like contemplating like going down the stairs to the basement to get a popsicle out of the freezer. I finally worked up the nerve to run down there and grab it and run back upstairs. I was fucking scared. Like I was scared witless by Dawn of the Dead. I, when I watch it now, I see all the dark humor and everything, but all that shit went over my head when I was 13 years old. And um, I didn't see the, you know, the political commentary or the dark humor. All I saw was like fucking, absolute you know 
fucking end of the world apocalyptic insanity. And it just freaked me out so bad. And then I wanted to go see it again. As soon as I got over being scared, I wanted to rush back and see it again. Right. And that's how it was when I brought home the first Venom record. I got it during the day and I was like, oh, this is fucking cool. And then like late, I went to the store with my friend later on that day. I took it down, um, you know, was listening to it by myself. And uh, I sort of got freaked out by, it, you know, <laughs> reading all the fucking blasphemous text on the cover and shit. It just freaked me out. And like that is powerful when you're scared. When something scares you, it's fucking powerful. Mm-hmm. And Sabbath did that to me when I first heard him when I was like eight years old. This same guy that took me to see Dawn of the Dead had a bunch of Sabbath records. And uh, me and my buddy who lived across the street from me would sit and listen to them when we were eight at like, you know, midnight and fucking freak ourselves out over the lyrics and it's it actually scared the shit out of us and this left a huge impression so yeah the the horror and metal coming together for me it's it's all about that it's just like trying to you know capture this certain energy i actually met brian yuzna the producer of reanimator about two years ago or something and i told him the story when the first time i went to see reanimator i was with matt olivo from repulsion and a few of my other friends and we took uh, acid when we went to see it. We were like, <laughs> we were like 18, 19 years old. Yeah, we dropped acid and went to see Reanimator. Like right when we were, we took it and then drove to the movie theater, which was insane to do anyway. But yeah, so like we get to the movie theater and we're like peeking when we walk into the movie theater. So I watched Reanimator for the first time on acid. And I told Brian Yuzna about this and he said, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> And then, uh, but but I also told him something that that uh, I still that that is, is absolutely true, which is, you know, when when writing the some of those repulsion songs where they like start out slow and then they have a fast part at the end or whatever, and in it, arranging the songs when we when we sequence the album for release, uh, it's trying to like create this thing where it starts out crazy and then dips a little bit and then you know you want to sequence an album so that it really hits you in the face at least a metal album anyway you want to really fucking come out strong Uh. and then sort of bring it down a little bit and then end really strong you know and uh so i told him that you know like we were trying to write the musical equivalent of the last 10 minutes of reanimator where it's just absolute balls out fucking overdose inject every fucking limb and Uh you know piece of guts laying around with reanimation fluid and like shit's flying all over the room and corpses are fucking strangling each other and it was just absolute mayhem and like that was what i was trying to do was like writes music that gave me the same feeling as watching the climax of reanimator That's so, good shit. <laughs> in a nutshell, that's where music and, and like metal and movies come together for me is is just energy. I have the very same kind of dynamic with a lot of the metal I listen to now in the movie Alien, uh, Ridley Scott's like original fucking art masterpiece. Yeah. That movie, as a kid, like you said about um, uh, uh, as when you were a kid, like as young as like you know single digits, like seeing these movies. I saw Alien like that young. It's scared the fuck out of me like i was absolutely fucking could not sleep like it was so bad but i was like 
that feeling uh, can and is often replicated with music. And I, the best music does it too. It like gives you that cinematic kind of rush that only a really like, you know, sick horror movie can give you. So yeah, I got, we're all horror fans here. So I know <laughs> Joe especially too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I yeah. was really impressionable at that time. Like, uh, you know, when the gore explosion started to happen mm -hmm. yeah. um, was, you know, because before VHS came out, um, it was like, you know, you could watch horror movies on late night TV. I, I watched all of them. Everyone I could could or anything with motorcycles or anything like that I was into. And then uh, and then you know, Dawn of the Dead came out and I was like, oh, this is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. I'd seen that on late night TV, which also freaked me out. But I was not prepared for the level of gore, like the physical violence in, in Dawn of the Dead just fucking blew my mind. And then, of course, the floodgates were open after that. And like I was going to the movie theater and my mom, my parents were really cool about like uh, they didn't care like um, what I watched or anything they weren't like censoring what i was watching so if i wanted to see a film my mom would like go to the, the go to the box office and buy me and my friend when we were like 14 um tickets to see shogun assassin or friday the 13th part yeah. two or whatever fucking the beast within whatever fucked up new gore movie came out that weekend and she would buy us the tickets and then pretend like she was going in with us and then just leave <laughs> Right, <laughs> pick us up when the movie was over, but yeah, yeah. like uh, that that fucking you know that type of stuff. Like you didn't see gore on late night TV, right? So I didn't get to, a chance to discover all of the amazing Italian you know stuff that had happened between like you know sixty eight and late seventies until VHS came along. Mm -hmm. And by then it was, you know, what, 82, 83, something like that, whatever. So, um, when Dawn of the Dead, when Dawn of the Dead, Alien, Friday the 13th, uh, what else came out around that time? There were a couple other films, but yeah, it was like this new wave of like gore movies that were mm -hmm. taking violence, uh, graphic violence to another level. Right. I think metal is, is, does both. You got the gore horror and that kind of like, almost gross out, not always gross out, but sort of like shock of like seeing such hideous gore. And then you have the, 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 the horror that's like the shining where there's, there's gore and it's used like explicitly and like, and like very acutely, but it's not the whole movie. Um, the movie is more of like this tense anxiety, like this kind of unnerved sort of displacement from, from reality. Yeah. And I think use uh, metal for me is often offered that kind of surreal experience where something is so chaotic or anxious or, anything whatever it is that it just comes more than itself in my mind and it takes me away so i think you're talking about the same thing with with movies like yeah you see the it's movie escapism yeah there's definitely yeah. the there's that surface level where it's like you know the first thing you get is is that you know you were talking about with dawn of the dead like there's the gore but then as you get older you appreciate what they might be saying right with the movie politics yeah. Uh, the viewpoint or it's the philosophy that's kind of being talked about. Um, you know, and some directors, some artists lean more heavily towards one way or the other, but I think it's the same with metal where there's some bands where you really appreciate the speed or the intensity of the music, but then later, you know, you dive into the lyrics or you dive into what in general is maybe the message or the idea of the band. 
and you maybe pick up something new from it. Yeah. And it's like, that's a really cool note to like, to kind of like conclude on for that whole conversation is sort of like, I mean, there's, there's a multitude of mediums or media that you can access, whether it's like horror or metal that gives you like that, that entrance to the extreme that you otherwise might not get unless you were actually in some kind of terrible extreme circumstance that you probably don't want to be in, like being chased <laughs> by a murderer with a knife, like fuck that shit. But to watch it, yeah. it's like, I want, I want my body to tell me like, here's all the excitement you can feel at once from all the drugs I can give you that are inside your head already. It's like, and metal does that for me. And I know it does it for a lot of people and, and horror I've watched movies enough and like, I, I'm not as huge of a buff as, as you, definitely not Joe and I'm Scott, I assume not you either. Um, but like, there's some select horror movies that I'll always like alien for sure. That, that just as a kid, it's just like stamped onto my brain. Like the horror I felt when that fucking alien popped out, yeah. and like, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's like, and then, you know, documentaries have the job of obviously translating all that into like, you know, to, to, to explain it to someone what that is like, and interesting way to kind of end too is to say like if someone asks me like about metal and they have no clue maybe they know who metallica is but they don't know about underground death metal or any of that shit and they might even think it's like full of satanists whatever but you just say it's it's horror movies for music it's just like because horror movies are socially accepted more or less like they live on the fringe but if someone at your straight-laced job hears that you like horror movies they're not going to think like oh he believes in satan he's just like he likes horror movies but like heavy metal sometimes has that curse of like of like uh someone thinking beforehand that you're going to be believe this or that because you like heavy metal or you know you just explain oh it's just horror movies but but music and i think you guys might agree that's generally accurate then horror movies but music vice the versa. problem with music is that people started out like you know all the songs were like darling i love you and shit and you know i like ice cream or whatever and then and then when people started bringing in uh you know, unpleasant subjects right into the music. Um, you know, as early as, you know, the, the first rock and roll bands, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and going forward to the Beatles and every, every everything that's happened since then all the way to, you know, fucking anal cunt or whatever. But um the the you know, when people bring unpleasant ideas into music, for a lot of people it's disturbing to them because right. they're like, No, music is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be you know, they, they don't they, they just think that, that if you're incorporating the sort of fantastical ideas that are totally acceptable in a horror movie, if you're bringing those into music, it's it suddenly becomes taboo. Or pollution, yeah. Yeah, people will read the most fucking disturbing horror novel and then go turn on a Justin Bieber record or whatever, you know? Like, that's that's what a lot of people do. There's yeah. people that love to watch Stephen King's It or whatever, and then fucking their musical taste is fucking Adele or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, for people who are more into... Or people who are more, like, sort of amused by dark subject matter um you're gonna be like you know like you guys into metal and then into horror movies or whatever you know who knows maybe you like there's probably a lot of people that like fucking horror, like death metal but prefer watching uh romantic comedies i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
So speaking of, uh, speak, well, before we end, or maybe yeah. this is after we end, I just want to ask you guys. So aside from the the grindcore documentary, you guys were discussing um, documentaries. What other films did you discuss? We talked a fair bit about uh, Until the Light Takes Us. Um, mm -hmm. We also talked about just sort of, like, I think some of the earliest music documentaries were those it's like bonus footage. Kind of like, like concert footage plus bonus content. Yeah, where, like yeah. bonus content. Like some of the first ones I had were the Demi Borgir and the Cradle Filth ones where it was a mix of interviews and tour footage and, you know, mm -hmm. in hijinks. Um, and then we, you know, we obviously, I think from the documentarian perspective, uh, we were talking about the importance of stuff like the decline of Western civilization and then maybe leading up especially for the metal world to stuff like everything Sam done is done with yeah. um, like metal headbangers journey and everything else he's done. He is a, he, his, he does a great job. I don't know if you've seen the, I don't know if you're interested or anything, but the ZZ top film that he made. I just watched it. Yeah. And it I don't even, really I don't like rush, but his rush documentary is fucking incredible. Mm. I love how he got like, Billy Corgan and um, and Trent Reznor like on there like two guys you would like a good chunk of their fans would be like oh they don't like Rush they got nothing to do with Rush and they're just <laughs> geeking the fuck out over Rush. <laughs> yeah, he was the the Rush documentary was was helped along by the fact that like uh, Alex Lifeson's uh, schoolmate made a documentary about him mm. while they were in high school mm. and actually filmed. Alex Lifeson at the dinner table telling his parents that he was going to drop out of high school and be a rock star. That was that, like, who else? What other documentary has that footage? That's like, not, not a reenactment, but the actual footage of his parents like losing their shit when he tells them <laughs> that I'm quitting school and I'm going to be a rock star. It's, I mean, and they're like Orthodox Jewish parents, like the, yeah. the totally fucking. Um, conservative parents, you know, and like he fucking drops that bomb on him. It's it's pretty incredible. <laughs> the only other way you could do that, and you know, you mentioned the ZZ Top Doc, and, and the way they did it was with the animations, giving yeah. the like, which which I thought was a creative way of of talking about the past. The ZZ Top documentary was interesting to me in that um, at the end of it, you've learned a lot about. Um, Frank Beard, the drummer, and Dusty Hill, the bassist, shock like crazy things like the fact that they were like they just finished a stadium tour and they went on hiatus so the drummer could go into rehab, and Dusty Hill got a job as a baggage handler at the Houston airport. That fucking blew my mind. Just but when it's all over, you don't know. You still don't really know anything about Billy Gibbons, like other than you've seen like well, he's very cool. He's done a lot of cool shit, but that guy was very clever in maintaining his mystique. At mm -hmm. the end of the film, you know, like almost too much about Frank Beard, the drummer, and you yeah. a lot is revealed about Dusty Hill. But at the end of the day, all you know about Billy Gibbons is that he's always been cool. <laughs> like he doesn't give up anything in that movie. That is fucking amazing to me. That guy is like a. He's mm. he's a a legend. I mean, I think that you know, if it was just him, 
it would be kind of boring, but it works because he's able to let the other guys be open and, and free about it. Yeah. So it's it's clever how that how they did that. Yeah, you see all this footage of Billy like, you know, humping gear at like some LA club in like 1968. But at, at the end, you're still like, who is this guy? Like, what makes him tick? I, I know a lot of things about Billy Gibbons from friends of mine who have like like the drummer in my rock band, he is a locksmith and he's like been to Billy Gibbons' house. And um, I know other people that have been to his house. The guy like sleeps in a sleeping bag and fucking he's like, and wrote a song called Sleeping Bag, you know? So he, he's an interesting character. And like a lot of that stuff is just like totally not revealed in the film. Mm. But um, what about... Uh, have you ever seen the the British the BBC documentary called um, Heavy Metal Britannica? Oh, I was gonna. We have that on our list. I didn't watch that one. Yeah, dig yep. that up. That's really great. The BBC documentaries are incredible. They've made tons of them. It's like um, BBC Four uh, does a lot of music centric yeah. stuff, and they've made back in the day incredible too. We were documentaries. Talking, yeah. We were talking about Hunter S. Thompson. There's a great BBC doc of him too. It's reference. Yeah. It's a good one to watch. But uh, yeah, I, we, I I had that one on my list to watch, and I remember looking at that one and be like, oh, that one sounds especially interesting, and I haven't watched it yet. So I I don't think it's the same one because because I forget what Heavy Metal Britannica is. But um, I do like, speaking of BBC. I do remember a really good kind of short documentary where I think the first half was about Slayer, but like coming playing or whatever but then the second half was napalm death and they go into like one of the guys bedrooms that's i don't know maybe still at their mom's house and it's like bill steer and and whoever else in the band just like sitting on the bed chit-chatting and i'm just like <laughs> god this is amazing like <laughs> just seeing this and then of course like they showed footage of them like you know when lee was still in the band and they played at the bbc and wow. you know it was it was interesting because it's like you kind of know like the BBC producers are half like, oh, check this out. What a joke this is. Isn't this funny? But at the same time, there's still kind of enough room allowed where it's like there's there's respect for it. Well, Just they took it bit. seriously because John Peel was yeah. um, totally into it. And John Peel was, you know, highly respected because of his, you know, like, you know, he he didn't necessarily discover these bands, but I mean, he was, you know, instrumental in like bringing Pink Floyd to the radio. And I mean, everybody, all, all the fucking classic UK bands. He, he, he had a hand in like, you know, those bands like getting, getting out there. So when he started saying like this Napalm death band is like the next fucking great thing, they had to take it seriously. Uh, was yeah, there... Heavy Metal Britannica is a BBC doc from maybe 10 or so years ago. And it's focused on, it's it's a feature-length documentary and it focuses on the, the history of heavy metal from, you know, the Kinks to Blue Cheer to Sabbath to Judas Priest and forward. It's pretty great. Mm, nice. I think it may, they may, maybe they talk about Napalm Death and that's at the end, but you know, Brian Tatler from Diamond Head and various members of Priest and Sabbath are, and Maiden are obviously all involved in it. It's pretty great. I'll have to check that out. I'm sad, Joe, we didn't talk about Iron Maiden very much earlier because I love talking about Iron Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, did a, 
Iron fucking goddamn maiden. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I get a little long-winded sometimes. Like I'll oh, just ramble no, on and on about you should, it. You should hear us talk. Oh my god. <laughs> I, you know, it's 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 funny because like when I was pitching the idea of having you on, um, and Andrew was like, "Well, do you think you could talk about a range of subjects?" And I'm like, "Dude, I just saw on Scott's Facebook like someone brought because you mentioned like the um, the seven inch or the single you had from um, Deep uh, Deep Red." Mm-hmm. And then somehow, like, the promo for it or said something like, scariest movie since Jaws. And someone made some comment. And then you gave, like, a whole long thing about, like, actually seeing Jaws when it came out and how people oh, yeah. react. And I was <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah, Scott, Scott can can talk about anything. We're, we're good. Be good. Yeah. No, it turned out uh, it was it was fantastic uh, talking with you, Scott, having this conversation and, like, just kind of shooting the shit. It's really the goal, I think, of the podcast is – we just want to have like casual, semi-casual conversation about just life, music, movies, and art in general. And like, that's what it is. It's cool. I love yeah. talking about this stuff. So anytime I mean, you guys yeah, want to yeah. do it, I'm, I'm game. Uh, yeah. I can see some repeat guesthood if our podcast continues and, and lives well. Let's hope that we can keep it up and people actually listen. I think so. We got good stuff, good content. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Joe, did you have any like last thoughts, inputs, questions? We hit, we just hit the hour mark. So we got plenty of content to work with. All right. Um, no, I mean, Scott, unless there's something you going on that you want to talk about or. No, that's what I just wanted to kind of ask you guys about the documentaries. I know I'm probably blanking on something, but uh, music documentaries or, Oh, what about um, murder in the front row? You guys seen that? I haven't yet. It just came out digitally. Yeah, Yeah. I haven't either. I have it loaded up. I know Mm -hmm. it just came out digitally. Um, And I've been meaning to rent it, but I haven't done it yet. I mean, I was... I'm going to watch before uh, Britannica. I'm going to probably put those two on next. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was... We were talking about earlier when when we did the segment on documentaries with our other writers. um, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to the point of it, but I definitely have in the back of my head the ambition to someday try to start making documentaries. And you need a video guy? Uh, I, I kind of need <laughs> to work my way up on that. <laughs> oh, you you being the video guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you direct, I'll make it look good. How's that? <laughs> All right. Just got to convince you to move out to L.A. or I move was, to Chicago. You, when we were talking about L.A., like, you, Scott, you got tired of Chicago, I assume, or, like, you just needed something different. We're at that point. Like, my wife, like, Chicago is great, but we want to try a different way of living. Um, and uh, Where do you live has, in Chicago? I live, we live in Pilsen, which, right in our opinion, is the coolest neighborhood in Chicago. <laughs> it's families, chill, you know. Yeah, well, it's that's cool. It's a little crazy on 18th where we live, but, you know, it's an artsy kind of kind of you know laid back kind of place good family stores and restaurants yeah um but i love la and i know my wife she hasn't been there in a long time but she would definitely enjoy it there but man it's fucking huge (laughs) lots of driving yeah a lot of driving that's the one thing you got to get used to is the car yep so yeah i mean you know Come out a little more, visit a few more times, get a feel for it. You know, I, I think coming out of this um, whole pandemic situation, though, um, I'm hoping that the entire country realizes that people don't, not everybody needs to go into an office to do their True. job. 
Right. And that could really change the world, you know, like just, just, I'm not even sure like what, five, 10%, hopefully more, but like just a little bit, just ease up on the traffic all over the world, ease up on the people um, going to buildings and fucking sucking up air conditioning and everything else and fucking you know there's there's so much bullshit involved in like work that like unless you're a fucking construction guy or whatever you can do a lot of you could do a lot from your your home i used to work a super corporate job uh had work from home i could work from home as much as i want or as little as i want but it was an hour commute in traffic outside the city to the suburbs and man it was like why ever go in because a, I got to dress up for what to impress who, and B, I got to like yeah. suck this fluorescent air that exists in this shitty, like cubicle building that makes me want to die. And then three, it's like I can sit here on my laptop, wake up five minutes before I have to get to work, get my work done, and then like, you know, at home. So yeah. save on gas. Yeah, I, I right. actually right now I'm getting to work earlier than I did because, uh, you know, I'm actually I still get up at the same time. Yeah. But like instead of like waking up at seven and then like, you know, brushing my teeth and making fucking breakfast and taking a shower and driving for 45 minutes into mm-hmm. my office. Now I like wake up and before I even brush my teeth, I'm logged in and fucking checking out what's going on at work. And uh, at the end of the day, when I'm done working, I fucking log out and I walk out into my backyard and I'm done. Like, uh, yeah. If, I love it. If any, yeah. if more people can do that, and I think, I mean, it saves the company a lot of money too. Um, I work for a major, uh, I mean, a major, major fucking TV studio, uh, television and feature studio. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, and uh, it's it's like uh, you know one of the big Hollywood names that you've that mm. you everyone knows, but mm. I, I'm rather not say. <laughs> It's fine. Don't worry. But, no, we, uh, but um, yeah. you know, I think they're starting to realize that, like, hey, man, people can fucking do their work from from other places, you know, like they don't have to be. And they also realize, like, the amount of money they spend on real estate. I think they're starting to come to some realizations. Yeah. Like, I'm assuming a lot of companies are where it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to we're going to end up like people are just not going to be. I think they were worried about productivity, but I, the reality as a worker in the United States right now is like, if you have a job and it's like good enough to give you work from home, you're going to probably work to keep that job. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You're going to be like, I want to stay in this job and I don't want to get fired and fuck up. So it's like companies are worried, like, Oh, we're going to lose productivity. And it's going to end up costing more overhead for staffing and everything. But realizing once you subtract the costs of like real estate and, worker unhappiness and turnover you're probably doing better if all your workers just stay the fuck home (laughs) yeah and uh you know like the amount that they spend on real estate if you have to like you know buy everybody a laptop or whatever to work from home that's a lot less of an investment than paying outrageous amounts of um, rent on yeah fucking office spaces and air conditioning and everything else maintenance i switched industries so i used to being a work from homeable job, just corporate paper pushing. But now I just do photography and real estate stuff. So I'm always out. I'm like, I'm driving around 40 miles a day all around Chicago. Uh, the traffic has been very great because coronavirus, no one's out. <laughs> Dude, I've been flying around to the suburbs, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah. Getting my done. But, uh, but I'm like, I love being out in my feet. And I used to be like 
I used to do this work from home on the computer and I do a lot of work on the computer for the website, obviously, and just in general, but man, being out on my feet, thank God. Sometimes yeah. it's good. Yeah. But you got, you guys got nature out there in California. So <laughs> yeah. Illinois, nah, no nature. Our deepest gratitude goes out to everyone uh, for listening and tuning in to our first episode. Um, it means a lot to us that you take the time to listen, get interested in what we have to say in our commentary on heavy metal. So it's just a personal thanks from me to you. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. We'll be back soon, of course, with even more. But in the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, www.invisibleoranges.com.